Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am your host, Todd Dandruff Wittellis. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on January 30th, 2024. The time right now, 9.23 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We have a free roll tonight. It has not started yet, believe it or not. You actually have time to get in there. Usually we start so late that the free roll is already going. But this time I was able to get the show turned on slightly beforehand. So it actually starts at 9.35, 12 minutes from now. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It is $50 cash money. When I say cash money, I really mean cash money. I won't actually give you physical cash unless you see me in person somewhere and ask me for it. Then I'll give it to you. But I'm not sending you physical cash in the mail. I've done it before, but it almost got lost once. So that was the end of that. But really, we do give you cash money. You can get it by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by cryptocurrency, by other methods you can think of where people send each other money via the internet, some which have been around for a while. I can send you the money those ways as well. I know we're a bit behind with paying, but, and I know I've said this last time, it'll happen very soon. I'm going to try to do it in the upcoming week. So if you have not requested any previous winnings, please send me a message in the various ways I'm going to give you to contact me and claim your money. Otherwise, we may have to roll it back into the pool. $50 this week is being given away. 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. The money came from Starbucks Spunk Bucket. And I actually noticed he had given $200 back in the spring, and I only used 100 of it. I was auditing the usage of the donations for the free rolls. And I said, oh, you know what? I never finished off the Starbucks Spunk Bucket donation. So I'm not keeping that money. It's being given away. So we had 100 left. 50 of it is being given this week. We'll probably do the other 50 next week. So thank you to him, even though this is a bit delayed. But hey, still money, still works. Not worth quite as much as when I received it because of inflation, but it's close. So you have 25 minutes of late registration as well, so you can register all the way up till 10 p.m. Pacific time with a full stack. So good luck, and join if you're listening live right now. If you want to call the show, the phone number, as always, it's the same, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. We also have the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is very simple. It is a number you call up. It's an old 70s rotary phone. It's a second number into the show. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808. It's an old 70s rotary phone, which forwards to me wherever I go. The call to listen line is very simple. You just use it to call up and listen to the show. It's not a way to call in and speak to me, but it is a way to listen to the show. It's an alternate listening method, and it works very well. It never buffers, and it never freezes. So if your connection is not that good, it's a great thing to use to listen to the show, either live or our streamed reruns. That phone number is 518-931-1189, 518-931-1189. You can... Call it from any phone that can dial in the world. And as long as you can call the U.S. for free, then it's free. Unless you have T-Mobile or one of these other crappy carriers that charges you for what's known as high-volume numbers. I don't get the money, but sometimes you'll get charged like a penny a minute. Most carriers do not charge that. Just want to put that warning out there. But we have had close to 4 million minutes listened to on the call-to-listen line 
And don't worry about using up the minutes. I don't pay per minute. So if you want to use it and listen and listen and listen, it's not going to bother me, nor is it going to busy out the line. We have plenty of phone lines, and it doesn't cost me per minute. So use it to your heart's content, the call to listen line. It's been around for now more than eight years. When I first built it, people laughed at me. They said it's like a relic from the 80s. Who's going to use this thing? And it's actually used a lot. We have a chat room. If you're listening live, you can go in the chat and chat with anyone else who's in there. You can also make comments in there, which I will check out every so often. Keep in mind, I'm the host of the show, and I'm also the one running the show from a technical standpoint. I don't have any assistants who do that for me. So with a lot going on at the same time, I cannot chat as well, but I will look at it every so often and comment. But if you do want to reach me, it's better to text me. How do you text me? Well, the main phone number, 775-372-8355. You can text me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you do it during the live show, I may read your text on the air unless you ask me at the beginning of the text not to do so. If you text me when we're not live, then I will not read it on the air. But you can always text me. It's always a way to get a hold of me, and I usually will respond to you. And if I don't, it's usually because I forgot, not because I'm trying to ignore you. So... I apologize to anybody who's texted me where I haven't answered. Sometimes I'll see it and I'll be busy or I'll have just gotten up from sleeping and I'm going to go back to sleep and I see it and I mean to respond and I don't. So it's very rare I get a text where I think, oh, I'm just not going to answer that. I usually try to answer everybody, but if I don't, uh, that's really what's happening. You can always text that number to give me comments on the show or ask questions, or give me stories you'd like to see me cover. I'm not guaranteeing I will, but a lot of the stories I cover here are suggested by listeners, so I appreciate those people that suggest stories to me. Just whatever you'd like to say to me, go ahead. Even if you want to criticize the show, go ahead. Just do it in a respectful fashion. But constructive criticism is always appreciated. I'm not saying that I will change it necessarily, based upon your opinion, but I I take them all into account because I'm doing the show for the listeners, not for myself. I wouldn't need to do all this for myself. I can talk to myself without even speaking. This is all for you guys, and this show is not monetized, so it really is just for the listeners to enjoy. There's a lot of ways to listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio in the archives, because most of you don't listen live. But if you want to catch it in podcast form, you can get it on iTunes, on Google Podcasts, on TuneIn, iHeartMedia, Spotify, Bullhorn, CastBox, and YouTube. YouTube's the most important one. We have added ourselves to YouTube as of September 2023. And I'm trying to get enough subscribers and listening hours under the channel's belt so they start paying me. Because that'll be nice to finally get something for this show. It's not going to make me rich. It's not going to really justify from a financial standpoint the work I put into the show, but at least it's something. At least it's some money that will come into my pocket from Google. But we have to reach the threshold for listening hours and subscribers. So please, whether you're going to listen to it or not on YouTube, please go subscribe. It's youtube.com slash at poker fraud alert, all one word. YouTube.com slash at, you know, the at symbol poker fraud alert. You also just type in Poker Fraud Alert in the search bar and probably find the channel that way. So please subscribe to the channel. Please like the broadcasts and please listen to the broadcasts on YouTube if it's not too much trouble. Now, if you really prefer to use the other methods that I mentioned, you can continue. That's why I continue to provide it on there. I'm not trying to force you to YouTube. I'm just saying that when we build up subscribers and listening hours, it will help me get there faster 
to where I can start getting some money from Google for doing the show. And I put it up on YouTube for two reasons. Number one, because I kept getting requests for it, and some people really like listening on YouTube. And then also because I was hoping maybe we can get some monetizing without me having to get formal sponsors. Because the problem with having sponsors is that if anything goes wrong with a sponsor, then I'm in a funny position. So I always like the ability to be able to approach any company from a neutral standpoint and not have to worry about what I say about them. So that's ideal to have something like YouTube paying me. So that's why I prefer you listen on YouTube and you subscribe on YouTube. But if you hate YouTube, then just at least subscribe. If you don't want to use it to listen, that's fine. I understand. Here's the agenda, and then we will get going. The main story tonight is the most recent story, and that's good, because it would suck if after the three or so weeks it's been since we were last on, that this would be an old story, but it's not. It's something that's going on right now. It's something that just started like two days ago, and it's ongoing. So maybe by the time you hear this, there will be new developments, but I think most of the developments have already occurred. This is about top tournament pro Anthony Zinno, who has four World Series of Poker bracelets. Someone very successful in the poker tournament scene is accused of stealing a backpack at a win tournament last month and stealing 20K out of the backpack before returning it. It's pretty shocking given Anthony Zinno's success in tournament poker over the past decade. People did not expect to see something like this. So we will talk all about the Anthony Zinno thing and a few little side stories that kind of spawned from the Anthony Zinno situation, which I will touch on as well. Here's something you've probably heard about, even if you don't follow poker or gambling or Vegas very closely, and that would be the Fountain Blue six-chip nacho scandal, also known as Nacho Gate. And that was basically where someone who bought what was billed as nachos from the sports book for $24 at Fountain Blue found that there were only six tortilla chips in the entire dish. <laughs> Pretty embarrassing. And this blew up, blew up big time, became very viral, and then eventually made the mainstream news. And then Fountain Blue had to do something about it, but they botched the initial response. So we'll talk about Nacho Gate and its impact, not just on Fountain Blue, but on the perception of Las Vegas. And I'll tell you the reason this became such a big story over something that seemed to be kind of stupid. Full Tilt software creator and one of the original Tilt Boys, they actually wrote a book about the Tilt Boys, Perry Friedman passed away at age 55. Perry Friedman was not super well-known in poker in that he was not like a household name in poker. He's not like a Phil Halmuth or a Daniel Negreanu or Phil Ivey, anything like that. But he was the main author of the Full Tilt software, which is very good software, by the way. And also known to just be a very nice and pleasant guy. This was someone who just about everybody liked. This guy had a lot of good qualities. I didn't know him personally, by the way. He's not a friend of mine. But unfortunately, he ran bad at the worst thing to run bad, and that was his health. So he had pancreatic cancer, which you basically don't recover from, and he didn't, and he passed away at the young age of 55. So that's a sad story. I will tell you about Perry Friedman. And just in case you think, well... 
this guy is probably a jerk because of the full tilt scandal. And given that he was one of the original board members there, you might want to blame him for it. Well, I'll tell you why you should not blame him for the full tilt theft of funds that occurred in 2011. And I will tell you the whole story behind that as well. So this is stuff we haven't really talked about that much on this show. We may have mentioned it once in the past in the context of the full tilt scandal, but haven't really discussed Perry Friedman very much ever. But we're going to discuss him tonight because he's unfortunately passed away. ACR, America's Card Room, quietly released a statement about the bot situation. This is a new statement since the last show we did. This statement was released on January 17th, 2024. And it was released so quietly they didn't even tweet about it. But I did find it and I have some comments about it. Another super user allegation took place involving GG Poker. This one was not as clear and obvious as the Money Taker 69 situation. I will tell you what that was about and whether I believe it really was a super user. Tropicana Las Vegas is planned to shut down on April 2nd, 2024. That has leaked out from an internal company memo that just broke yesterday, so it's also a new story. This was in anticipation of converting the site to a ballpark for the Oakland A's, who will become the Las Vegas A's. But hold on a second. That's not a done deal. It may not actually happen. The closure is going to happen on April 2nd for sure, but it's possible the A's may not actually come to Las Vegas. I will explain why. I'll explain what the holdup is and what the issues are when we get to that segment. Then we're going to talk about Phenom Poker. You may have seen, if you're on Poker Twitter, various people that you like and trust within the poker community, including weekly Poker Fraud Alert listener Ari Engel, who usually doesn't promote anything. So they had eight sponsored pros promoting this new site, which isn't even complete yet. So you can't play on Phenom Poker, but it's something that's coming soon, supposedly. And you may have seen some trusted names in poker, such as Ari, tweeting about it. So what is Phenom Poker? It claims to be revolutionary and so-called trustless. That doesn't mean you can't trust them. It means you don't have to trust them. I'll explain that when we do the segment. But, But is it really what they claim that they say it is? And is it something that has any chance to succeed? So I will talk all about Phantom Poker, and you'll understand it very well when we are done with that segment. At least I hope you will. Clark County passed a law against standing on pedestrian bridges. That is, you have to keep on walking. You have to keep on moving. If you stop on the pedestrian bridge, then you're technically in violation of the law in Clark County. That is new, but that's a new law that's been passed. So should you, as a tourist to Las Vegas, be concerned if you have to stop for any reason, either to take a picture or to tie your shoe or whatever. If you just stop and stand for a second, do you have to worry about them citing you or arresting you? I will explain that law and the reason they passed it when we get to that segment. We've talked before about follow home robberies that have taken place from card rooms, especially in LA where these seem to be common and have been going on for decades. And Another one occurred, this one from Commerce. A man was held at gunpoint at his home when he was followed home after a Commerce session 
But there were some unusual factors to this entire follow-home robbery, especially one of the big factors that was unusual. The thieves didn't watch him very closely because he was broke. (laughs) Oops. Tip to anyone who wants to rob those leaving card rooms, make sure they're leaving with money. Make sure that they're cashing out chips from the table and not just like a few chips. They picked someone who went busto at commerce and then tried to rob him. Former Resorts World CEO Scott Sabella has pled guilty to federal charges. And now everybody's talking about Scott Sabella. Now it's big news. Now it's in the mainstream news. We've been talking about Scott Sabella and his shadiness since the beginning. And I had wondered, and I said so during these segments, why he kept getting involved in scandal after scandal, shady situation after shady situation, and Las Vegas media didn't give a crap about it. No one covered it. We covered it. The Nevada Current, which is an alternative publication in Nevada, covered it. But basically nobody else covered it. And now everybody's covering his pleading guilty to federal charges. So I'll tell you about that. And I'll remind you some of the other things that he's been involved with that don't have to do with the federal charges that are also shady. Barstow, California is right in between L.A. and Vegas when you drive between the two. It is right off I-15. And two Indian tribes are attempting to get a casino established there, which isn't a bad idea. The problem is, it's not Indian land. So do they have any chance? Because you have to have Indian land in order to establish a casino. It has to be on that land in California. So I will tell you whether they have any chance of establishing it and what mechanism they're trying to use and why Barstow would be a good location for a casino if one were to be there. A small casino in Maine known as Oxford Casino accidentally gave away $250 of free play to a lot of their patrons when they didn't mean to. It was a small contest where five people would win $250 in free play and they gave it to a ton of people. So I'll tell you what happened after that. Finally, and I put this at the end because I'm sick of saying this every year. I'm sick of covering this every year. Just going to be a brief segment at the end. Poker Fraud Alert was snubbed once again for the GPI Awards. I know you're shocked, but we were not even nominated. I think one year we might have been nominated, or at least we were on the list of potential nominees, something like that. But we've never won. We've never come close to winning. And most or all of the years, we are not even nominated, which is not fair. I don't really care that much. It sounds like I care, but I don't care that much. I mean, it's just a stupid arbitrary poker award. But we really should be nominated. And when we get to that segment, I will tell you all the things that Poker Fraud Alert Radio is number one in. And we really are. I'm not making this up. I'll tell you all those things. And I will explain why this show really does deserve some kind of nomination if they're going to be giving out a Poker Podcast Award. If they're not, then of course we don't deserve one. But we definitely deserve it for Best Poker Podcast, at least to be nominated. At least to be nominated. Yes, I'm biased, but it's a little annoying how we're like never nominated. But the whole thing's kind of a circle jerk, so it's understandable. All right, so let's get going. You still have 16 minutes to get into the free roll. 
So I have an announcement regarding Poker Fraud Alert and about why I was a little bit late doing the show. Not late as far as the time I started, but why it took over three weeks to do the next show. So first I'll talk about the radio player that did not work last week. Or not last week, the last show. If you remember in the show we had earlier in January, if you went to go listen live, the radio player was not working and the call to listen line was not working. And yet the streaming reruns were working. That's what threw me off, as I was testing it all with the streaming reruns, which basically work on the same mechanism, and, and it was working fine, and then I ran radio, and then it was not working fine, and most of you could not listen. Some of you could somehow, but most of you were getting error messages. Well, it turned out it was like a really, really boneheaded mistake. It was like a typo I made, and it took me two hours to figure out this typo, which was really frustrating, because I was banging my head into the wall trying to figure out what I did wrong. And then I figured I was like a one-character typo that was screwing up the live broadcast. So I fixed it, and uh, I can see now people are listening with the usual numbers we get in our live show. Last show, I was going, what the hell is wrong here? Why is nobody listening? Like, I thought just people lost interest in the show, and it wasn't that. It was that most people couldn't listen because the player wasn't working and the call-to-listen line wasn't working. So this is all working again. Just want to let anybody know. Of course, if you're listening right now anyway, then you can tell it's working. But if you are listening in the archives because you were afraid to try to listen live because it failed last time, it should work again. So that is announcement number one. Announcement number two is if I sound a little bit different, and if you hear any kind of uh, congestion in my voice, I don't know if you hear that or not, it's because I just had a cold. Fortunately, it wasn't that bad of a cold, but it happened to show up right when I wanted to do radio. I hadn't announced radio yet, but I was just about to announce it, and I started to feel a cold coming on. I'm like, you know what? I better wait one more day to make sure a cold isn't coming on, because if I do radio when a cold's coming on, it just makes the cold a lot worse, because it puts a lot of stress on my throat, and I guess on my sinuses, and it's just something that's not good for that whole area of my body to talk this much straight. So if I have a cold coming on, it just really complicates it and makes it much worse. So if I feel a cold coming, then I do not do radio. Or if I have a cold, I don't do radio. This cold I caught for my son, he got it really badly. It was the worst cold he's had of his life. And I guess the other kids at school experienced it the same way. So it was really just decimating the school sending kids out at a very rapid rate, and they were gone a long time. And I saw why, because he got a very bad version of the cold, too. It was not COVID. It was a cold, but it was a very bad cold. And it dragged on for a long time for him. And I tried as well as I could to avoid getting it from him. But just with how long he had it and how long he was contagious, because basically with colds, you remain contagious as long as you have all the major symptoms still. And once the major symptoms start to go away, then you're not contagious anymore. But because the major symptoms were there for so long, it just wasn't getting better, I eventually caught it. Just being in the same house with him for long enough, eventually I caught it. So there's only so much you can keep away from your kid, you know. So that's what happened, and I caught the cold. Fortunately, I did not get the version of it that he had. I got a much milder version of it. I took a lot of vitamin C. I don't know if that helped. The cold I had that was really horrible was last year during the World Series. Didn't get COVID, but I got a really bad cold during the World Series that a lot of other players got. It really went around during the World Series. In fact, that cold was much more of a problem at the World Series than COVID was. So that was a bad cold. That was one of my worst colds in a while. This one, pretty mild. 
They had a lot of nasal congestion, but that was about it. I didn't even have much of a sore throat. I didn't have much fatigue. I didn't have much as far as muscle and joint pain. Because I, I get a lot of that stuff when it's a bad cold. This was just kind of congestion. And it fortunately didn't last that long. But unfortunately, it arrived just as I was going to be doing radio. So I kind of pushed radio back about five or six days. And it's not completely gone where I still have to blow my nose a few times a day. And that you may be able to hear my voice. So if that's the case, I apologize. That's announcement number two. But I felt good enough to do radio tonight. And it's on its way out, so I'm not worried about making it worse. Announcement number three has to do with the sound quality of the last show. You may have noticed that at some point of the last show, especially during part two, because we split into two parts, that the sound quality was poor and it sounded kind of distorted. Like you could hear me. It wasn't soft, but it sounded just distorted and gravelly, especially when I talked. So this was due to the fact that I am broadcasting from a new computer. And I didn't really talk much about the new computer, but I have a new computer now. And whenever you get a new computer, there's always new idiosyncrasies that come up, especially with things like radio. So what had happened without my realizing it was that Skype was automatically lowering the volume very low when I had a co-host on. So the sound quality was fine. And then what happened was Calwatt came on, which I was happy to have him. But we get Calwatt on and then... It just adjusted the sound way, way, way down to where we were both super soft. And I didn't really get anyone telling me this because there was hardly anyone listening due to the issue with the player. So because people couldn't really listen live and because it was the middle of the night and we were having these sound problems, like no one told me about it and I was super, super soft. And Calwatt was super, super soft. He was even softer than me. So when I went to edit the show, I'm like, oh my God, I can't look at like the sound levels. They were fine, fine, fine. And then like, as soon as Calwatt comes on, it dropped to like almost zero. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know if this is salvageable. I don't know if I can even use this part of the show. And I was very disappointed. So I worked on it. I, I put a lot of work into it, but I worked on it and I boosted the sound of that entire stretch to something that was listenable. And in fact, the sound volume was fine. I know Calwatt was a little bit soft, but... For the most part, it was at an okay volume, especially me. The problem was it wasn't a consistent amount of softness. If it was consistent, I could just boost everything a certain amount, and for the most part, it'd be fine. It'd be a little distorted, but aside from that, it would be fine. The problem is it was kind of ranging between super, 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 super soft and just super, super soft. So that's a big difference when you try to just take an entire block and amplify it because then some parts of it become too loud. So then I had to go back and manually soften back part of it that became too loud. Well, as you can imagine, this didn't do the best for the sound quality. So that's why I sounded kind of distorted at some parts. And if you'll notice after Calwatt left, it got better because then Skype, I guess, undid the problem without him on anymore. So I'm not blaming Calwatt for this. This is my computer and my fault for not making sure that Skype didn't have these stupid settings to do this. I just had neglected all this stuff because I reset up everything on this new computer and I just forgot to take some steps to prevent these sound idiosyncrasies from happening and I wasn't checking the sound levels as I was broadcasting, which I should have been doing. So some of this was my own carelessness and just neglecting the fact that I had a new computer. But needless to say, the last show had its problems between the distortion and the 
live listening issues. But the good news is that this should all be fixed now. So, no, we haven't had a big decline in sound quality. No, we have not broken our live player, at least not anymore. And yes, I have the very remnants of a cold right now, but it's almost gone. And that's why I was able to be here tonight. So just wanted to put those three things out there for you so you can understand everything going on. Because unlike ACR and GG Poker, I will tell you when Poker Fraud Alert is having problems. I want to make one more announcement before I move on. It's about the call to listen line. It is still having some minor issues to where it will sometimes say this stream is not available and to try again later, but then it actually works. So if you get that message when you call the call to listen line, give it like a good 30 seconds after you hear that message because it may come on normally after that. I'm not sure it's why it's giving that message. I'll have to look into it. But sometimes it will say that when it is really working. So just ignore that message and wait 30 seconds to see if it really appears. And it probably will. That is the final announcement. We're going to talk about Anthony Zinno. This is a very new story. It just broke a few days ago. And the one to really bring everyone's attention to it was me. I wasn't the first to report on it. The first person to mention it was a direct friend of the alleged victim. And the first person in poker media to discuss it was Matt Berkey. So I won't take credit of being the first in either of those categories. However, it really caught fire when I wrote a detailed article about it on Poker Fraud Alert in the Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum and then tweeted it out. It now has tens of thousands of views, that tweet, and that really got the ball rolling with everyone talking about it. So now it's become a big story in poker. In fact, it's probably the biggest story in poker here at the end of January 2024 because it's just kind of shocking. It doesn't involve a ton of money. I mean, it's got decent money involved that was allegedly stolen, but it's just the whole shocking nature, both of what happened and who did it, or shall I say, who allegedly did it. Anthony Zinno, let me give you the background on him in case you haven't heard of him. Anthony Zinno had kind of an interesting story with his poker career. He was not someone who just showed up and crushed. He wasn't even someone who was one of these young kids that got out of college and ran it up big time. This was a guy who struggled for a while. And he wasn't playing poker like right out of being college-aged. Anthony Zinno is currently 42 years old. His first tournament cash was in 2007. So yeah, that's a while ago. It's 17 years ago. But that would have made him 25 at the time. And he then kind of just plotted on in the middle limits for several years without really making much of an impact. It's possible I played with him in my first World Series of Poker main event deep run because he got 205th that year for 38K and I got 88th that year for 80K. But I didn't really take notice of him and really nobody did until... 2013, because that's when he blew up. So he was just kind of like a mid-stakes grinder. And from what I was told from someone I know very well who had an interaction with him, I'm not sure if he wants me to tell that story from 2012, so I won't, but it's someone I know very well and had an interaction with him. 
at least as of 2012, he wasn't doing very well, Anthony Zeno. And if you look at his results in 2012, you can kind of see it because he was playing lower stakes tournaments at that point. Starting in April 2012, it seemed like everything he was cashing in was a three-figure buy-in. 560, 280, 400, 345, 345, 130, 600, 400. So he really was not entering events that even had a 1,000-plus buy-in for the most part. He did cash in a 1,500 PLO8 event at the World Series in 2012, but it was only like a small cash. And then he went back after that in the beginning of 2013 to mostly playing these three-figure buy-in tournaments. So this definitely was not a guy who was blowing up in poker for the first six years of his poker career, which is you know, quite some time. Imagine playing six years, and for a lot of that time, you're stuck in the three-figure buy-in tournaments. I guess I admire his persistence, but most people in that spot would have probably quit. But it was good for him that he didn't. Almost like a switch got turned on, somehow Anthony Zinno got much better in 2013, after six years of a poker career that really didn't go anywhere. He got 11th place in a $3,500 event in January 2013, now 11 years ago, of course. It was a $3,500 event at the Borgata, and he got almost 40 k So that was a pretty good score for him, especially since he was playing like three-figure buy-in tournaments prior to that. I don't know how he got the 3500 to play, maybe he took a shot, maybe he was staked, but whatever. That was a decent score. But then things started to get even better. He got 11th at the 3K PLO event at that World Series of Poker for 23K. And then at a deep stack extravaganza, which I think was at the Palazzo in July 2013. It was a 5K buy-in and he finished in fourth place for 87K. Very nice. But that was nothing compared to what he did a few months later. On September 15, 2013, he really had his breakout, winning the, again, $3,500 No Limit Hold'em main event at the Borgata for 825K. And from there, he just didn't look back and just kept crushing. So he got his 825K score in September 2013, He had some decent scores leading up to it that probably enabled him to be able to play events like that more regularly. And at that point, he was off to the races. And he started having some really nice results. He seemed to just win and win and win. You just kept reading over and over and over again that Anthony Zinno was winning events or coming close to winning events. He just always seemed to be there at the final table or actually being the winner. 2014, he didn't do very much, but 2015, he had his real breakout year, cashing $3.7 million in that year alone, followed up with a little more than a million dollars in cashes in 2016, 447K in 2017, then a very nice 2018 and 2019 of almost $1.4 million in 18 and $1.768 million in 2019. That's a lot of money here. In fact, if you look at his results between 2015 and 2019, which is a five-year span, 
he racked up about seven and a half million dollars in cashes just in that time. That's pretty damn good, right? You may say, well, I bet he was probably entering high rollers, probably entering these 100K events where you're just going to rack up a ton of cashes, but you're going to spend so much doing it, you may have numbers like that and still be losing. Well, I don't think so, because he was not entering a ton of high rollers. And if you scroll through his results, while it doesn't show the tournaments he entered and lost, you just don't see many results for tournaments more than 10K. Now, 10Ks do add up quickly if you play a lot of them. If you play 100 of them, it's a million dollars. And he did occasionally enter high-stakes events, like at the 2019 U.S. Poker Open, he entered a 25K event and finished sixth. There was a small field, by the way, so he didn't cash all that much. But for the most part, he was not playing high rollers. So this isn't like a Justin Bonomo or a Bryn Kenny who have these eye-popping numbers for their tournament results, but they're spending a fortune to enter them. Or probably an even better example would be Carrie Katz, who's not a professional poker player. Carrie Katz is a billionaire who made it through owning a student loan company. And he plays poker for fun. But Carrie Katz has one of the highest amounts total cashed in poker tournaments of anybody. He's right up there among the top cashers of all time. So does that mean Carrie Katz is one of the best players in the world? No. He's not a fish, he's not bad, but he just is a billionaire and he can afford to enter every single high roll event. And as long as he plays competently, which he does, then sometimes he'll luck into cashing big because you enter big, you cash big. But that wasn't the case with Anthony Zeno. He was mostly cashing at events that ranged between 1,500 buy-in and 10,000 buy-in. So this was a guy who just was consistently winning in these poker tournaments. Now, he was spending a good deal of money on buy-ins, so I don't want to minimize that he was spending a lot, too, to enter these, but nothing like the big high rollers. So while his total amount cashed of $11.6 million is obviously impressive, but it doesn't compare to the very top cashers, you have to understand that he is not entering that many high roller events. So given what he's entered and what he's cashed, it's very impressive, especially since he didn't really get going until 2013. And people knew this. People knew of Anthony Zinno as this seemingly super lucky player who just always ran amazing. And I experienced that. I played with him before at the World Series, and the guy always ran well. I never saw the guy have bad luck when I was at the table with him. It was crazy. And I know you can't just say, oh, this person's a lucky player. You know, eventually, if you play in a volume, and he did play a lot of volume, the luck catches up with you. So he must have been doing something right. I'm not saying this is all luck. Now, you are going to have players who are luckier than others over time. That's for sure, especially in bigger spots. A few hands fall the right way for you, and that can make the difference between busting out of the money and winning millions of dollars. So you do have to look at that as well. But he was consistently running deep, making final tables, winning events. He won four bracelets, and he didn't really get going till 2013. In fact, he hadn't had a year where he cashed more than 87K until 2013, even though he's playing since 07. So this is a guy who really was 
a poker success story. He was an inspiration to those who were trying and couldn't quite get there. Not getting clobbered, but ones who just couldn't make a living at the game. Ones who were always struggling. Ones who kind of felt like something was just a little bit missing to achieve greatness. And he found that in 2013. And then from 2015 to 2019, he just had such a run, $7.5 million in cashes without many high roller events being entered. So why am I giving you this whole history? Well, I already mentioned it a little bit at the beginning of this segment. He is currently embroiled in a major controversy. And that's very surprising because this guy is not a Chino Ream. He's not someone who's known to be shady. This is the first time I've ever heard anything negative about him. In fact, he's known in poker to be a nice guy. Everybody says he's a nice guy. In my interactions with him personally, he was a nice guy. So this was surprising to find out. But it is alleged that Anthony Zinno stole a backpack from another player that a player had accidentally left behind, brought it to the bathroom, and then took 20K out of it and returned it without the money. And if that's true, that is pretty surprising from someone who's been known in poker to be both very successful and very nice. This is not the person you'd expect it from. So I'm going to give you everything I know about this, and then we will discuss it. This really kind of blew up about two days ago. So it's still developing. We're still learning more. But the more I learn, the more I come to the opinion that he is guilty. And again, at this point, it is an opinion because he has not been convicted in a court of law. I don't know if he's even been charged with anything. And the facts are still coming out. But so far, it doesn't look very good. And I'll tell you why as this segment goes on. So you can listen to all the details and you can make a decision for yourself. And by the way, before we get going, I want to be clear regarding how I felt about Anthony Zinno prior to this whole thing coming out, this whole story being told. I was pretty neutral on him. He was always friendly to me when we would play at the World Series of Poker. He knew who I was. He'd say hello to me. Always seemed nice. But we were not friends. We did not interact outside of the poker table. We had very little total overall interaction at all. So it's not like I've even had any kind of extensive conversation with a guy. I really never have. I've seen him at the table a number of times at the World Series over the years, and he's been nice there, but that doesn't really say much. So I really just didn't have much of an opinion other than, yeah, he's done very well, and when he's played with me, he's been nice. That was basically my opinion of him. So I definitely didn't dislike him. I don't have any reason to bash him or try to make him look bad. I have nothing against him. And I also am not friendly with him. So I can really approach this from a very neutral standpoint. And given that I'm not like on the tournament trail, I really only play tournaments at the World Series for the most part. I don't interact with him that much, whereas others who play a lot of tournaments just got to play with him so many times they became kind of friendly with him. And I was not someone like that. I would just see him occasionally at the World Series. So, here's what happened. A few days ago, a guy named Willie Wiggins, 
who I've never heard of before, but he I believe he's from Florida. He's a poker player from there. Not well known. Willie Wiggins wrote this on Facebook. My friend Corell, C-O-R-E-L, left his backpack in the room while bagging, meaning bagging up his chips at the end of the day, for a 3K tournament. He was searching for the bag all night because he had 20K in it, and the next day the cops called him in. The Encore said they had footage of Zinno taking the bag and running with it to the bathroom. He's now officially banned from the Encore and Win premises. This is in Las Vegas. Yet nobody at Poker News or blogs are talking about it. Don't want this thief to steal from anyone else in the future. He's currently being investigated from Pettit Larceny. Now, I think he meant for Pettit Larceny, but at first I thought he misspelled Petty. But he wrote Pettit, P-E-T-I-T. Well, I learned something new when I googled it. Pettit Larceny is real. This was not a misspelling. Pettit Larceny is another term for Petty Larceny. I never knew that. But yes, Pettit Larson is it's a real thing. It was not a typo. So who is this Corell? Remember, this Willie Wiggins is a friend of Corell, the alleged victim. So who is Corell? Well, Corell is not well known in poker. He is a recreational player. It came out later that his name is Corell Theuma. T-H-E-U-M-A. Never heard of him before. In fact, I hadn't heard of Willie Wiggins before. Which complicated analyzing this a little bit because I didn't know any of these people. So I can't say, well, Willie Wiggins is a trustworthy guy. He wouldn't say this if he wasn't telling the complete truth. I couldn't say that because I don't know who he is. Corell Theuma. I don't know him, so I can't say anything about him either. So it's harder to analyze something like this when the person reporting it and the person who was the alleged victim are unknowns. But that doesn't mean that they're not telling the truth. So, of course, we have to aggressively look into this to figure out what the truth is. And I decided to do that. The first mention of this situation in poker media was by Matt Berkey. Notice that Willie Wiggins was complaining that poker news and the, quote, blogs aren't talking about it. I don't know what blogs he's talking about, but it is true that we weren't talking about it. But that's because I wasn't aware of it. If I had been made aware of this, I would have brought this up a long time ago, because this happened back in December. So it's been more than a month, because we're at the end of January now. This isn't something I've been avoiding. I just hadn't heard of it. In fact, most people had not heard of it. And Willie Wiggins is not someone who's that well-known. So I'm not sure when he posted this, but it eventually filtered over to Matt Berkey. Maybe someone brought it to Berkey's attention, and Berkey brought it up on one of his only friend shows. Now, Berkey was not exactly harsh on Anthony Zinno here. In fact, it was the opposite. So while I'll give credit to Berkey for being the first person in poker media to make this public, I didn't really like the segment very much. I'll play it to you, and then I will stop it every so often to comment, and then we'll go from there. Okay, so... (laughs) This happened uh, back in December, I guess, um, and we had heard about it. I think everybody had heard about it to some degree, uh, like through the grapevine. But there were like conflicting reports as to what actually happened. Um, but supposedly now it's becoming a lot more public knowledge that uh, Zeno was caught like taking a book bag in the wind uh, that had twenty k in it, which you know ev- eventually like he was uh, charged for theft. But I guess he's not actually getting charged for the full. 
20,000, maybe because it's not verifiable or whatever the case may be. But anyway, uh, this supposedly did happen. Um, and he's being investigated allegedly. moving forward or whatever. Uh, allegedly, supposedly. Who cares? Um, <laughs> so uh, the reason why I think this is worth mentioning is not to like drag Zeno. I think he's you know a great guy. I love Zeno to death. He's super nice. Uh, and I think everybody has that opinion of him. But hold on a second. So I already don't like it here. He's saying the only reason that we're bringing this up despite Zeno being a great guy, a nice guy, et cetera, et cetera, is, and he's about to tell people. Well, no, I don't even care what you feel the reason is we should bring this up. If somebody in poker is accused of something like this, and it seems like the allegation has some credibility to it, even if it hasn't been verified, even if we're not sure it happened, but it seems like it's not unlikely that it happened if it seems like it's something we can believe happened based upon the story, then it should be discussed. Now, if this was a total nobody poker player doing it, one unknown stealing from another, it would still be worth mentioning, but it wouldn't really be very big news. But someone like Anthony Zinno, who has been very well known in the past decade in poker for being successful, and, as Berkey even said here, was known to be nice to everybody, of course this should be discussed. That, that's the reason to discuss it. It shouldn't be, well, the only reason we're talking about this is, unless the next thing you say is, because Zeno's very well known, and that makes it a big story, any other reason that you feel that this should be discussed where otherwise it shouldn't is not the correct thing to say. Anybody who's prominent in poker that's accused of something like this, even semi-prominent in poker, this should be brought out and everybody should be made aware of it. This is one of those things where it's like, you know, it's a cautionary tale of uh, beware of who you're doing business with in situations where, you know, they have these outstanding situations that uh, are less than above bar. Um, Hopefully he is just going to make everything right. uh, And this will all go away. No, (laughs) no, I don't even understand some of what he said there about a cautionary tale who you do business with. What? This isn't even about doing business. This is about an alleged stolen backpack. Nobody was doing business here. But he also said, well, hopefully he'll make it right and he'll go away. Well, no, that's not how stealing works. If you steal and then you get caught stealing and then you give back the money, that doesn't erase the fact that you stole. This isn't the same thing as owing money to someone that you borrowed from. And then you don't pay back the money in a timely fashion, and then you're outed for that, and then you pay it back. That's still not good. That's still something that is problematic and people should know about. But at least there, you were given the money at first willingly by the person who loaned it to you, and then you just didn't keep to your promise to pay it back in the time you said you would. Now, if you lied about the circumstances to get the loan then it becomes more of theft. But we're just talking about a loan here, someone that you know is uh, busto, and that they claim they'll pay you back very soon, and then they don't. Yeah, that's uh, just more of an issue of uh, bad debt. And that's something where if somebody pays it back, okay, then we can move on. But when there's like an outright theft, if this really did occur, this is something that definitely needs to be etched into people's minds. So I don't agree there either. 
and we won't have to hear any more about it. Um, but also, like you know, you don't want to be put into a situation where this stuff gets swept under the rug because a guy had a score and like you know erased a past mistake or whatever. It's like we should still probably be pretty aware of like what's going on in uh, in the sphere of where we're gambling. But most importantly, don't fucking leave your book bags laying around. Okay, that's not most important. That's victim blaming. Of course you should not leave a bag lying around that has money in it or anything that you would be concerned about getting stolen. That's not a wise thing to do. You just don't leave your stuff out in public to where someone can steal it. That's good advice, not just in the poker room, but everywhere, and not just involving poker. But that's not the main point here. And in fact, as you'll hear from this story, the backpack was not left out there intentionally. It was an accident. The guy just left without his backpack. That can happen. It's like telling someone who left their cell phone on a table of a restaurant and walked out because they thought they had it in their pocket, and then they figure it out an hour later, and then someone had stolen it by then. You don't tell the person, hey, the most important thing here is don't leave your phone on a restaurant table and go home. So that's pretty much what he's saying here. And even if Berkey didn't realize at the time he made this segment that this person just forgot it rather than left it out sitting there. And I think Berkey even said something like that when he made another show the next day. So I believe that's what he thought. You should never focus on errors or poor judgment by the person who was victimized that left them open to be victimized as the main thing you're talking about. You can quickly mention it to say, just to make sure this doesn't happen to you, here's what you should do. That's a fine thing to say, but you should never say, let's really talk about this. Let's make this the main focus. This is the most important thing. And then talk about what the victim did wrong. Because the truth is, I could bring a backpack and I could fill the backpack with one million dollars. And I could bring it to the poker room, and I could open it up so everybody can see there's a million bucks in there. And I can announce, hey, everybody, I have a million dollars in this backpack. And then I could walk out and say, okay, well, guys, I'm going to go to dinner. I'll be back in 90 minutes. And then just leave it there. Would that be smart? Obviously not. Would that be an excuse if anyone stole it? No. If you steal that backpack with a million dollars in it, even though I'm gone 90 minutes, even though I was stupidly announced my backpack has a million dollars in it, If you steal it, while I was dumb to make it this easy for the thief, the blame could not be on me. The blame would still be 0% on me. The blame would be 100% on the thief. On my end, you could say that I used very poor judgment with protecting my million dollars, and you'd be right, but that does not excuse the thief's actions, nor should that be the focus of what's talked about. You can mention if something's unusual like that. You could say, wow, why would this guy leave a backpack with a million dollars unattended for 90 minutes and leave it wide open? That would be an interesting discussion topic just because it's weird if that were to happen. But it wouldn't be that guy's fault. It's the fault of the person stealing it. And that's something to always keep in mind whenever there is bad behavior in the poker or gambling communities. Don't blame the victim. Don't talk about how stupid and gullible the victim was or careless he was. You can mention it, you can give advice to others so they don't run into the same issue, 
But the main focus should be on the person who stole it. So I never like that kind of victim blaming sort of thing. Let's go on. <laughs> if you have money in them, especially like victim blaming now. Well, a little bit, yeah. You know, Barbara was on the Barbara was on the show, and he was talking about how the the cheapest mistake he ever made was leaving his book bag at a table at a Venetian where he had like uh, either an iMac or like uh, a Surface Pro or something like that. Like not too expensive, but like expensive enough that you wouldn't want to have it stolen. Somebody on break took his book bag, took the computer out of it or the the, uh, tablet, whatever. um, And he went to security to, you know, try to find out who the perp was and, and get persecuted. And he said the thing he'll never forget is when he asked them to check the tape, they said to him, those cameras are there for our benefit, not for yours. I want to mention something else here. Looking at the chat of this show, they have a chat in YouTube as they broadcast live. Eric Froelich, Poker Pro Eric Froelich, he is a huge fan of Matt Berkey and this Only Friends show. Like a huge fan. I've seen him in there. He sees every single one. He has nothing but extremely positive things to say about Berkey and this show. So he, he loves that show. Even he was perplexed by this statement. He said, the quote, he's a great guy seems to be at odds with the statement and situation. Statement meaning about uh, Zeno. I'm confused. Is it substantiated? So Froelich's saying, why are you saying he's a great guy if this is being alleged of him? Unless you really think this is not true. That's basically what Froelich's saying. He's confused. Why would you still be calling him a great guy? And then be covering this as if you think there's a good chance it's true. And that's a great point by Eric Froelich, who, again, is someone who's very, very positive towards Berkey in this show. So this was a misstep by Berkey. Again, I want to give him credit for not just sweeping it under the rug. Like, you could say that it would be even worse if Berkey heard about this and said, you know what, I think Zeno's a great guy, so I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen. I'm just not going to cover it. That would be worse. And he didn't. He was the first one to bring this out in poker media. So I will give him credit for that, because it is very easy when it's someone you like to just not cover it, to just say, I'm going to ignore this, I'll pretend it's not happening, and hopefully this won't become a big story, and no one will even notice that we didn't cover it. But Berkey didn't do that. Berkey said, I'm going to cover it anyway. He was the first one to bring it out in poker media. So props to him for that. I don't want that to be lost in the whole thing. But this otherwise was not a good segment. Very weird. To victim blame to talk about how Zeno's a great guy. You can say he's always been nice to you. You can say that in your interactions, he's been someone that you find very pleasant and you really like being around him. But you can't call him a great guy unless you think this allegation is completely false. If you think someone's making it up and trying to slam him when he was innocent, then you can call him a great guy and you can explain why you think this is false. But Berkey's not saying that. He's not saying he thinks this is false. He's like... Here's the allegation, and he kind of seems to be implying like he believes it. So it's kind of a weird segment. Let me play a little bit more, then I'll stop it. Yeah, I remember this. Jeez. So in essence, yeah. like they're there to protect the casino, correct? Not the clientele, right? And this this extrapolates that, out, right? That is like true. Yeah. when it comes to having big chips on the <clears throat> table, uh, you know, even carrying chips in your pocket, whatever the case may be, you are not insured. The casino is not going to be responsible if somebody walks by and plucks a 5K off your stack. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's, it's funny you say this because in right. Florida... Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to stop it. I, I don't feel like playing the rest of this here. That's the part I wanted you to hear. 
I also don't understand that advice because if you're playing a high-stakes game, which Berkey does all the time, by the way, you see pictures on his Twitter where he plays these high-stakes, uh, no-limit games in the live casino, you can't just grab money off the table when you go to the bathroom or go somewhere else. You are supposed to keep every penny on the table that was ever in play. Otherwise, it's called rat-holing, which is against the rules. This is done to force those that ran up a big stack to continue playing with that big stack and not protect what they won. Because at no limit, of course, you can lose your whole stack in one hand if somebody else has the same amount of chips as you or more. So in order to prevent this rat-holing, which really changes the whole way No Limit Hold'em works, they do not allow you to remove chips from the table. And even at limit games, where it's much less important to prevent such removals, they still don't let you do that. So you can't just say, okay, well, I'm going to take my chips, guys, and I'm going to the bathroom. They won't let you do it. You can take your chips at any time and leave, but you cannot take your chips temporarily while you leave and hold your seat at the table. That's just not allowed. So I don't know what he's talking about, about leaving this stuff on the table. Now, it is true that if somebody walks by and grabs chips off your stack and gets away, that is just tough luck on you. And that's always been kind of unfair to the players. This isn't just at poker. This is true at blackjack or anywhere else. Where at blackjack, you actually can take chips and put them in your pocket. You don't have to keep everything on the table that you had in play. But in poker, you do. So in poker, it's kind of unfair that you have to keep it on the table, but the casino won't protect your stack if it gets stolen. That kind of sucks. But that's just the way it's always been. So I don't know what advice he's giving here. And yeah, I've felt funny about it too before when I've had a lot of chips on the table, especially where I have some big chips. And then I have to use the bathroom where I have to take an important phone call and walk out of the room for 20 minutes or something. Yeah, it does get a little unnerving. Like, might someone steal from me while I'm gone? Might even the person next to me palm a chip or two while I'm gone? So I usually count what I have there So at least I can make sure that I come back with the same chips as I had when I left. But if someone just blatantly takes something and runs off, and they're not caught, then I really have no recourse. So he is right about that part, but I don't see what you can do about it. So it's kind of a weird segment all around. But nevertheless, that was the segment that first got some attention to this story, which then led to me getting attention to the story, because I had not heard of it. When Berkey did this show, I had not heard of it. So I will say that if Berkey had not brought this out, there's a good chance I would not know about it right now. He wasn't the one to originally post about it, but someone brought this Willie Wiggins post to Berkey, and then he put it on his show. So props to him for that. That was good. Just the segment wasn't good. (laughs) And I think if Berkey goes back and watches this again, even though he knows more now than he did then, even knowing what he did then. There just wasn't a good segment. So this spawned a 2 plus 2 thread about the matter. Because someone watched Berkey's show and thought, well, what's this? <laughs> what's happening here? It seems like they're just kind of talking about this quickly, which they, they, it was a pretty short segment. Like I, It's not a super long show like this one. They do a lot more shows than we do, but they make them a lot shorter. In fact, it's about every show is a lot shorter than this one. But even by their standards, it was a pretty short segment. So here's what a person named Duck Yu 
posted on 2 Plus 2 on January 27th. Was listening to Only Friends podcast episode 443 at approximately the 1652 mark and accusations made about Anthony Zeno. I'm having a hard time believing the accusation that Zeno took some dude named Carell's backpack during the batting up of a 3K Encore WPT. He meant bagging up, not batting up. Does anyone have additional information or context? So this spawned a discussion where some people who posted in the thread knew about the situation, or at least they claimed to. Now, one of them, by the way, listens to this show. I didn't know that at the time, but one of the two people that I'm going to read who posted about this is a listener to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. So I do believe that both of these people probably do know the victim, Carell. But here's the first post about it. I know the victim, Carell. He's an incredibly nice guy and a true gentleman. He's a businessman, not a grinder, but he has some decent results. Not that that matters in a case for theft. He's played a few high rollers, too, so anyone who knew him might surmise that his bag would have significant cash. I haven't spoken to him directly, but I did speak to a good friend of his, and I believe the allegation to be 100% true. Carell left his bag under the table. Zeno took it to the bathroom and emptied all of it, or nearly all of it, approximately 19 to 20 K. Wynn caught him red-handed on the cameras, and they questioned him. A police report was filed. I believe Zeno admitted taking the bag, kind of hard to argue against the camera evidence, but he denied the amount. As a law school graduate, according to his Wikipedia entry, he probably knew the threshold for pettit larceny versus a felony. Okay, so let me comment on that statement. Remember, this was in December, so it's been about at least six weeks since this happened, but it's just all coming out now. The story, according to this guy, was that Carell, who is not a pro poker player, but a rich recreational player, who he's even played a few high rollers, left his backpack under the chair, under the table, and that Anthony Zeno allegedly took the backpack, ran to the bathroom with it. I don't know if he ran. He walked or ran. I don't know. Went to the bathroom with it and went through it, took all the cash out, and then returned the backpack. And then when Carell came back and got this empty backpack and said, hey, where's my 20K? The win pulled up the footage, found that it was Zeno who took the backpack and went to the bathroom. They see this on the cameras. And they called him in to question him. And that he admitted he took the backpack, but that he said that he never took the money. He doesn't know about any money that he just took it, went to the bathroom, and returned it, and has no idea about the money. That's what this person's claiming here, is the story. A second interesting post in that 2 plus 2 thread came from someone named Gamble. Both of these accounts go back a ways, so neither of these accounts were registered just for this. One of them was made in 2012, one of them was made in 2009. But this Gamble guy has 479 posts dating back to 2009. He said... I can confirm the story is true. Zeno is banned, that is banned from the win and Encore. There was 20k in the bag, and of course Berkey's take and skimming over the issue was horrible as per usual, likely due to his personal relationship with Zeno. Stealing a bag in the casino has to be one of the more desperate, if outright stupid things an individual can do. Zeno has a history of this, so I'm glad he's being outed. Now let me stop right here. I don't know about any history of this. In fact, even as some days have passed, and some people have brought some information to me privately, no one has told me that Zeno has stolen other bags in the past. So I don't know what he's talking about here, this guy Gamble. 
maybe he just is confused because I've never heard of any allegation of Zinno stealing people's bags or just outright stealing from people before. At the very least, his reputation will be seriously harmed and he will ideally lose eligibility to play at other venues once this case begins. Hopefully, the charges will lead to way more than petty theft, i.e. the casinos can look at Corell buying into events that day and see the cash being taken out and put back in bag at the cash at the cage, etc. So, so basically what he's saying here is that maybe the casino has some kind of view into the bag at the time that Corell bought in and the camera can show that there had to be at least 20K in the bag and that the bag being returned empty showed it was stolen. And then they could charge him with a felony. That's what this poster gamble was hoping. Now, at the time all this was being posted on 2 Plus 2 and on Matt Berkey's show and from this Willie Wiggins guy on Facebook, nobody at that time who was well-known and neutral and reliable in the poker world was commenting on this with any kind of knowledge of this happening or not happening. Because the two main informational posts about it came from these two users on 2 Plus 2 who really weren't known. And then there was that one Facebook post, and then there was Berkey talking about the Facebook post, apparently with not much more information about it himself. So this was far from a certainty at that point, but why would all this be made up? Like, who would make this up? Why would they make this up? It seemed that this Willie Wiggins, for example was a real poker player from Florida who never had created drama before. It's not like this guy is a pathological liar. Like, no one's ever heard him make this kind of allegation. Why would he just choose Anthony Zeno to accuse of stealing a backpack with 20K in it and, and taking the money? Like, why, why would just a random poker player in Florida make that allegation unless there's something to it? That doesn't make Zeno automatically guilty, but it does make one pause and they go, wait a minute, like, why would he just pick Zeno and accuse him of this if none of this happened. So just based upon everything I read there, I would have been shocked if this was just completely made up. If I found out after this that none of this happened at all, that it was completely fabricated, and that Zeno was 100% innocent, and that nothing like this happened, I would have been shocked. In fact, I would have even been shocked if Zeno took the backpack and returned it to security or to the poker venue without ever opening it, and then the story morphed into this. I also would have been shocked by that story, if that's what came out. That's not what came out. I'm just saying, if either of those had been the case, I would have been shocked. When I read all this, I think, okay, there's got to be something to this. Maybe there's some kind of misunderstanding. Maybe it's not quite like this, but something happened here, and the person who needs to answer as to what happened here is Anthony Zinno. And if he doesn't answer, well, then that silence speaks volumes. Because you better believe if anyone ever posted anywhere that I stole a backpack with cash in it from the poker room and that I ran to the bathroom with it and took money out and then gave the empty bag back. If that story started going around social media, I would immediately appear and say, absolutely did not happen because I wouldn't do that. And even if I had picked up the backpack, like let's say I thought the backpack was mine and I picked it up and I'm like, oh shit, this isn't my backpack. And I ran and gave it back. Like, even in that situation, I would clear it up. I wouldn't just stay silent because that just makes you look guilty. Because just about every time someone stays silent when they're accused of stealing or scamming in poker, they're guilty. 
And we've seen this. We've seen this over the years. And Anthony Zeno, who's been around for a long time, I'm sure he's seen it too. So you don't stay silent when credible or semi-credible looking allegations are made against you that you stole or scammed. At that point, you have to stand up and say something. Now, if someone is accusing you of something ridiculous that nobody would ever believe, and you also didn't do it, then you don't have to respond to it. But anything that starts to get any kind of traction or that you think would even be semi-believable if people saw it, you do have to make some kind of comment denying it. Otherwise, your total silence on the matter looks very bad. It makes you look guilty. And as I'm recording this right now on January 30th at about 10.30 p.m., he has not made any statements, Anthony Zeno. Anthony Zeno does have a Twitter account. He hasn't tweeted since 2022, but just in case you think that he's not on Twitter, you're wrong, because he has been privately messaging people, including me. Now, with me, he just kept saying he wanted to talk to me, and then just kind of disappeared, and we never had our conversation. But he did start messaging me after I posted about this on Poker Fraud Alert. And the reason I think he messaged me was that I had the first and perhaps still only long-form article about this matter that was anywhere on the internet. Remember, this Willie Wiggins mentioned it first on Facebook, then Matt Berkey mentioned it on his show. That brought people to talk about it on 2 Plus 2. But I was the one to make the first long-form post about it, explaining it and analyzing it. And then I tweeted it out, and that got tens of thousands of views on Twitter. I was very fair in the post. I was not saying that Zeno was guilty. I gave my opinion based upon everything that I saw. But I also put up some possible things in his defense that maybe it was a very bad-looking misunderstanding. And I'll explain some possibilities that I put up in a second. But I was very fair in the post. But at the end, I basically said, he's got to come out and clarify this. And if he doesn't, that looks really, really bad, and it makes him look very guilty. That's basically what I said in a nutshell, but I described the whole thing in great detail, and that's why it got a lot of views on Twitter. And then from there, everybody started talking about it. From there, between the mention on Berkey's show and then my longer-form explanation of the whole thing, just from everything I had seen. I didn't have any inside knowledge. That really got this going. And then what I got it further going was Carell, the alleged victim, appeared on Twitter to make a statement about it. He picked kind of a strange thread to make the statement, but we're not quite there yet. We're not quite to Carell's statement yet. So taking a look at Anthony Zeno's Hinden mob, it shows kind of a mixed picture of his poker career since 2020. I told you about his poker career through 2019, first basically struggling through the beginning of 2013, and then blowing up in 2013, and then having a really hot run between 2015 and 2019, where he won $7.5 million in cashes in that time. But the 2020s have been much less spectacular. 2020 itself, of course, was the COVID year, and the casinos were closed for some time, and even the tournaments that ran once they reopened had a lot smaller numbers. In 2020, he cashed 151 k I don't know how much he entered that year because it was the COVID year, so we'll kind of ignore that one. 2021, he cashed 643 k which is a far cry from what he was doing in 18 and 19, where he was 
doing way over a million in both of those years. But 643K is not that bad. Also, there is still somewhat of a COVID decline in poker tournament participation in 2021. It was coming back, but it wasn't quite all back to normal. Remember, even the World Series of Poker was delayed that year. But he cashed 643K, so that was decent, it looked to me. 2022 was the first one where I saw some signs of trouble. He cashed 164000 in 2022. And you might say, well, that sounds fine. Yeah, it's not as good as 600 something thousand, but 164 is fine. Well, no, not necessarily. He's a very prolific player. I have to imagine he spent far more than 164K in buy-ins that year. So it really looks to me like 2022 was a losing year. I can't say for sure because I don't know if he won or lost in cash games or if he even played them. I don't know if he maybe just played an abbreviated schedule. But from all the caches he had, it looked like he was very actively playing. And the buy-ins would have added up more than 164K just from eyeballing that. There's no way to see, but I would be very surprised if he was a tournament winner in 2022 cashing 164K. So that already was indicative of someone who might be starting to struggle. Now, 2023 was better. 2023, he cashed $507,000. Now, that might have been enough to cover the tournament buy-ins. Again, he was playing in a very prolific fashion in 2023, as he has been just about every year. So I will say that he may not have been that far ahead, but if I had to guess, I would say he probably did win in 2023. But did he win that much? Well, maybe not. Like, let's say he entered $450,000 worth of tournaments, then he would have won $57,000. I'm just making that up. But I'm saying that the 507K looks very impressive, but someone who's playing a lot of tournaments between 1500 and 10K buy-in is doing it over and over and over throughout the year. That can add up really, really quickly, and the 500K in caches can really get whittled down to very little profit. In addition, he might have been staked, especially after that 2022. So if he was staked in 2022, and he lost, and he was in makeup, I'm just, again, theorizing here, I'm not saying he was, but if he was, then even if he did profit decently in 2023, a lot of that would have had to go to the backer before he pocketed any profit. So you can even have a year like 507k cashed and have made a healthy profit. Let's say he entered 200k worth of buy-ins and profited 307,000. Well, that's pretty good. But if he was in makeup for 250,000, that leaves him with very little. Because makeup means you got to pay that off the top before you do your split with the backer. So there's a lot of ways with these 2020s numbers that he could have been struggling financially. Now, what about the big wins he had before that? Remember, he cashed about $3 million in 18 and 19 combined. That money doesn't just go away. So what about that money? Well, who knows? Who knows what he was doing with that money? I don't know if he had a negative EV gambling habit. I don't know if he spent too much expecting that he would keep just crushing on the tournament scene. I don't know if he had other financial leaks, like bad investments. These are all possibilities, and I say they're possibilities because I've seen them happen to many other successful tournament pros. Remember Olivier Bousquet? We've talked about him on this show. 
this was a guy who really looked like he was kicking ass and crushing it. And then he put out a podcast where he explained that he was broke. And people were shocked. They're going, Olivier, we thought you were doing great. Nope, I'm broke, he said. He explained that he just was spending a lot of money entering these tournaments and also not being all that responsible with his money. And that he was broke. Even I was surprised to hear that. If someone asked me at the time before that podcast aired, how do you think Olivier Bousquet is doing? I said, yeah, he looks like he's doing well and winning a lot of money playing tournament poker. But no, he was broke by his own admission. So there's a lot more tournament pros like that than you probably think. You'll see these eye-popping cash figures and get kind of jealous of them. You'll look at these guys and go, wow, I wish I could be cashing like that. Wow, these guys are so lucky. Wow, these guys, they must just be so good. All the money they're making, they're just you know six-figure cash after six-figure cash. Wow, I'm jealous of these guys. I wish I could be this guy. And then you find out they're broke and you're shocked. But there's a lot of ways it can happen. And in fact, sometimes they're not even ahead in tournaments. Because remember, when you see who's at the final table, when you see who wins, when you see who cashes the big money, what you don't see is who loses. And that's 90% of the field. You just don't see mention of them. They're just not listed. But there's a lot of people in each tournament who lose. (laughs) 90% of the field loses every time. So if you're part of that 90% over and over and over again, that really adds up quickly. That's what is very misleading about tournament poker. Since this story came out, I've had some people that have been messaging me. And again, this is just hearsay. But I've had some people messaging me stating that Anthony Zeno had asked them for stakes in recent years. I'm not talking back like in 2012. I'm talking about like in 22, 23. People were claiming that he had asked them for stakes. So I have people telling me, and these are not people who are known to lie or make up stories. I had people telling me that it didn't look like he was doing very well. Again, it's hearsay, but I had more than one person telling me that privately. The reason they told me is because I was the one who made this thread on Poker Fraud Alert. So whatever the reason is, it's possible that he wasn't doing very well. Now, that doesn't mean he stole, necessarily. There's a lot of people in poker who are struggling, and they're not necessarily stealing. In fact, most of them are not. So while being broke or close to broke is a lot more motivation to steal than if you're doing really well, most people who are broke or close to broke still don't steal. So that still does not tell us for sure that he did it. That just gives us a possible motivation. Now, what are some possible excuses that he could give as to what really happened here? So let's assume right now, even though I don't have complete 100% verification, but let's assume that he did, at the very least, pick up that backpack and did go to the bathroom with it and did return it, and that this Corel guy, the actual owner of the backpack, really does believe that 20K disappeared from it from the time he left it behind and the time he got it back. Let's assume all that's true. Let's assume that the win got him on camera, him meaning Zeno, taking the backpack and walking it to the bathroom. So what could possibly be an excuse at that point? What could be the explanation other than stealing? Well, the explanation that is most possible 
if there is going to be an explanation other than stealing, that's true, would be that he absentmindedly grabbed somebody else's backpack, believing it was his. So let's say Zeno grabbed it and thought it was his, or grabbed it and thought it was somebody else's that was close to him, and then went to the bathroom because he had to go to the bathroom, and while he was in there, he's like, oh crap, you know what? Maybe that's not my backpack. It doesn't exactly look like it. And then he opened it up to see whose it might be, and then noticed it wasn't his, and then returned it to security. And as far as the cash, well, there was no cash. He doesn't know what the guy's talking about. Could that happen? Yes. Do I believe that's what happened? No. There's too many coincidences here to where if that's really what occurred, he's like the unluckiest guy ever. Like, I guess because everyone says he's constantly lucky at the poker tables when they played with him, maybe this was all his bad luck coming into one spot. But I don't think so. Like, that's just not something that seems plausible to me. It's very plausible you could grab the wrong backpack. I'm not saying that can't happen. But he would have had to grab the wrong backpack, happened to need to go to the bathroom at that point, take the backpack into the bathroom, and then return the backpack, and a rich guy who owned the backpack finds the cash missing. Like, where would the cash go? How would this guy who owned the backpack... How would he think he had 20K in there if he didn't have 20K? It's not like $100 went missing. It's, it's easy to believe someone thought they had 100 lying in there and didn't. But how could 20K go missing? How could this guy think he has 20K there when he doesn't? And why would this guy make it up if he has plenty of money to his name? You could say, well, this is a scam to try to get money out of Zinno or out of the casino, but not if the guy is doing very well. So why would this guy make this up? And why would he think he had 20K there if he didn't have 20K there. And what's the chance that when someone else handled the backpack, one, they'd grab the wrong one, two, they'd go directly to the bathroom, and three, in that whole interaction, that somehow 20K from the backpack disappears, that he didn't actually steal. It's just too many things that had to come together at once to make this one of these things where it's a really, really, really bad-looking situation where he was innocent. And once in a while, there are situations in life where you can look really, really bad and really, really guilty, and it turns out it was a series of unfortunate coincidences altogether to make you look like you were guilty. But I don't think that's what happened here. Another possible explanation could be that this guy Carell owed Zeno money for a long time, and Zeno got tired of it and then grabbed it in order to collect the money. Now, if that were the case, I actually wouldn't blame him. If there's someone dodging you that you see entering event after event after event, and you're pretty sure they're never going to pay you, and you know they have a backpack with cash in there and they leave it behind, yeah, I wouldn't blame someone for taking it and going through it and taking the money. Now, this wouldn't be a smart way to do it because you'd get in trouble, because that's still not your right to do. But morally, I could see where that's not that bad. However, there is no indication that these two even knew each other, or that Carell owed Zinno money, or that Carell ever would owe Zeno money, because people are saying this Carell guy has a lot of money anyway. So why would he owe Zeno money in the first place? So that was just something I thought of as an outside chance, but it's not very likely. It's especially unlikely. So at this point, I have to think that Zeno probably did do it. Because the alternate explanations don't make sense. And if there simply was no grabbed backpack at all, if the whole thing was made up, we would have heard from Zinno by now. Because I know he messaged me and said he wanted to talk to me about this. We ended up not talking, 
because he just stopped answering me for whatever reason. Had this just like not occurred, it would have been very easy for him to just make a public statement saying, I never took a backpack. I'm not on camera taking any backpacks. This is all made up. It didn't happen. He could make a very quick post like that, and he could say, I'm very confident that nobody can produce any evidence of me having done this because I never touched any backpacks. I don't know what you're talking about. But since he has not said that and his reputation is going down the toilet right now, clearly there is a reason he's not making a statement. So it's somewhere in between he took the backpack, but something is being exaggerated here. Like, let's say just Carell thought he had 20K in there and really didn't. So Carell thinks he was stolen from, but he just didn't remember that he had already spent that 20K, already gambled it away somewhere else. It just slipped his mind. So what if that's what happened? But Zeno doesn't want to explain the whole thing that he took the backpack thinking it was his and went to the bathroom because he thought it was his backpack and he happened to go to the bathroom at the time and then returned it and then he found out the bad news he was suspected of stealing money that was never in there in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that's got a small possibility of being the case that happened here, but it just doesn't seem like that's what it is. And if that is what it is, he needs to say so. If that's what he says happened, then he needs to come forward and tell people and be as transparent as possible. But we haven't seen that. Now, I will tell you something that was messaged to me privately from a listener to this show after I had written this post about the whole thing. This person wrote, Hey, Druff, just read your write-up and wanted to add something. And by the way, this person's been around a while. It's not just a random. I know who they are. I've never known them to make up stories. So keep that in mind. I'm not going to say who it is. It's a listener to this show, and I generally believe they're drama-free and honest. They wrote, I'm hearing Zeno's story is that he thought the bag was potentially his girlfriend's. She's a prominent poker massage therapist. He's saying that he thought it was either hers or belonged to the person she was massaging, and the room had completely cleared out as the day was over, referring to the win poker room, the tournament room. He took the bag and for some reason went to the bathroom and looked through it to find the person's name. He realized it wasn't anyone he knew and returned it to security. I'm not sure if he's telling the truth, but that's the story he's telling people. I lean that he's not telling the truth, but I could also see a scenario where he's just really unlucky and stupid. <laughs> so this is, again, from a listener to the show who I've known a while and has never been known to lie or to say things for drama. So at the very least, I think this person heard that. Again, this is third hand. The person heard from somebody else around Vegas that this is Zeno's story. Someone supposedly told this person that Zeno told him this. That the story was, Zeno thought it was his girlfriend's. And if not his girlfriend's, maybe the person his girlfriend was massaging because this is exactly where his girlfriend was working. So he grabbed it to either return it to his girlfriend or to whoever she was massaging, went through the bag, tried to find a name in there, and then said, hey, I don't know who this belongs to, and returned it to security. And now is being unfairly accused of stealing 20k out of it. That is the story Zeno is supposedly telling to some people he knows and got back to this person. 
So this is not verified to be Zeno's story. Zeno has not made a public statement to anybody. He has not made a statement to me. But if this is his story, I found a big hole in it. <laughs> okay, so let's say that this is exactly what happened. Let's say Zeno's version of events as told to this other person is what really happened. And Zeno's innocent. If this is really what happened, then where's the 20K? Why would this Corel guy being... Why, why would he say that 20K is missing? If this is the way it happened. This whole story would explain why he took the backpack. It doesn't even say why he went to the bathroom. But let's just assume nature was calling and he had to go. This still would not explain why there's 20K missing. Why with all this happening, there was also the coincidence that this Corel guy thought there was 20K that was no longer there. I guess the only thing he could say is, well, maybe security stole it or maybe this Corel guy was just confused. But I don't think either of those are believable explanations. So, unless Zeno can explain where that 20K went, which I doubt he ever will, this story doesn't hold up. It's possible that what he was doing was reverse engineering the story from what was caught on camera, because you can't change what was caught on camera. So if you know you're on camera, picking up the backpack, walking directly to the bathroom, and then giving the backpack to security after you walked out of the bathroom, the only defense at that point would be something like this. Something like that you took the backpack for an innocent reason to try to figure out whose it was because the room was emptied out and you didn't want it just sitting there. And you thought maybe it was your girlfriend's or a client of your girlfriend's. And then when you figured out it wasn't, you just gave it back to security and you don't know what happened. That's really the best you can do at that point, because you can't deny you picked it up because you're on camera. You can't deny you walked to the bathroom directly from there because that's on camera. You can't deny that you walked it to security from the bathroom because that's on camera. So all you can try to do is just say, there was no 20K. I don't know what they're talking about. Here's why I took it. It was very innocent. It was a mistake. I thought it was my girlfriend's and I don't know about this money. I have no idea about this money. I can't comment on the money because I didn't see any money. That's the best you can say. And it's not only the best you can say for your reputation, it's the best you can say to avoid being criminally charged. Because 20K is well beyond the minimum range to be charged with a felony. You can be charged with a felony for 1200 This is 20K. is way more than 1200 So if you cop to it, if you say, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I took 20K out of the backpack. Sorry about that. Here, here's the 20K back. I'm sorry. It's kind of a moment of weakness. Sorry. Well, at that point, you've just admitted to stealing 20k and at that point they can charge you with a felony and you can see some real prison time so if you don't want a felony on your record and you know that nobody has actually seen you taking the, t the 20k then admitting to taking the 20k at that point would be kind of foolhardy if you are looking to avoid prison in a perfect world when someone is caught doing something like this they just cop to it even when there's no direct evidence that they took the money and then they do their time and that's that. But that's not real life. Usually when people are caught committing crimes, especially ones that are felonies that could land them in some real prison time, they're going to find ways to deny it or at least to deny enough of it to where it's not a felony and to where they're not likely to really spend time in prison. So, for example, if he were to be criminally charged for this, 
I'm not sure if the DA would even take the case, and I'm not sure if any jury would convict him with him coming back with this story, because the one thing that is missing is any proof that the 20K was in the backpack and any proof that he took it. So even if you can strongly believe he did it, and even if every explanation doesn't really add up besides that, if he is not actually seen taking 20K out of it and Corell can't prove 20K was in there, then Zeno's attorneys could say, hey, Corell just thinks he had 20K in there and must have forgotten that he doesn't. He must have forgotten that he lost it earlier in the casino or that he never brought it. Or maybe it fell out of the backpack sometime during the day before the backpack was taken by Zeno. There's a lot of explanations that could be come up with there that uh, the 20K even could have been in there in the morning and then been gone by the end of the day where Zeno didn't do it. I'm not saying I believe any of that. I'm just saying that to get convicted for something like this, it would have to be what's called beyond a reasonable doubt, which is different than the legal standard of preponderance of the evidence, which means anything more than 50% likely. 50.01% likely is preponderance of the evidence, but beyond a reasonable doubt means almost 100%. And juries are very reluctant to convict people of felonies when it's not beyond a reasonable doubt. In fact, they're instructed not to. So I think if this case ever was brought and the DA took a look at it, the DA would either not press the charges or would charge him with a much lesser offense, like just taking the backpack itself without the 20K involved. And that's why it looks like they're investigating petty theft, which taking 20K is not petty theft. So if he's convicted of petty theft, that's not good, but it's much lesser of an offense with a much lesser consequence than taking 20K, which is a felony. So if you think that he's going to come forward and cop to it, if he did it, that's never going to happen. So we may not ever get a full conclusion to this, no matter what. Even if he's convicted of petty theft, because convicting him of petty theft may just simply be because they're going to convict him through a plea bargain of taking the backpack, but not about taking the 20K. So really, I don't think we'll ever have 100% certainty of anything but that he just grabbed the backpack. Now, it is possible that upon further explanation and further investigation, that they will find that his girlfriend wasn't even massaging anyone at that table, or that he seemed to be walking in and scanning the room to grab something, So who knows what's on that camera? Like, how did he know that backpack was there? It was supposedly like under a chair. So how did he know it was there? Did he happen to walk by it? Or did he walk into the room and kind of look around, look around, look around, and then find it there? There's a lot of things that could be found on camera that would show some form of premeditated theft or likely premeditated theft rather than walking by it and and, uh, grabbing it or walking directly to that chair upon entering the room as if you know it might be there. And also, I have to assume they're going to ask his girlfriend some questions, because she's part of this story, provided that's the story he's going to tell. So maybe upon further investigation, this whole story will fall apart, and he really won't have one. So maybe we'll get a clearer picture that way. But I don't think we'll ever have the 100% clear picture, nor do I think he will be convicted of stealing 20K, no matter what. If there was a camera in that bathroom, yes, but there's not a camera in that bathroom. And by the way, that's the reason people think 
he went into the bathroom is because that's the one place in the casinos there's no camera. That's why people are really, really suspicious that he grabs a backpack that is not his and walks to the bathroom directly from taking the backpack, leaves the bathroom, returns the backpack, and then 20K is missing. Like, that's exactly what you would do if you wanted to steal money out of the backpack. You wouldn't just open it up in the poker room or somewhere else in the casino where they have cameras. Now, it's still not smart to do because they have the whole thing with you taking the backpack on camera. And when the person complains to security that 20K is missing, then they look up and who they see who took the backpack and turned it in. And then they call you in and they might arrest you. And at the very least, you get banned. So I'm not saying it was a smart crime if this is what happened. I'm just saying if you're going to do that, then doing it in the bathroom is really the only option. Here is the statement from Corel Thiuma, the alleged victim. He made this statement in response to a now-deleted post by Ryan LaPlante. This whole part's really strange, too. So Ryan LaPlante, I've talked about him before. In fact, he used to listen to this show. Ryan LaPlante is a professional poker player, and he has a poker coaching service. And he's somewhat of a left-wing political activist as well, and he's also openly gay. In fact, he was one of the first openly gay male poker players. Pretty much as as soon as I heard of, of him, I saw on his profile that he was gay. So, you know, props to Ryan for being one of the earlier gay men in poker to just be open about who they were. Because for a long time in poker, for whatever reason, males were not coming out as gay, even when the rest of the country was pretty accepting of gay people. So if the entire time I've known of Ryan, he has been out as gay. Now, at the very beginning, when he was in poker, he wasn't. But as I said, he's one of the earlier people out as gay. And he does a lot of posting on Twitter of, uh, again, like a lot of left-wing politics, a lot of uh, pro-gay activism. And he's gotten some people to dislike him over this. Now, even though I don't agree with his politics... I never had a problem with him, and in fact, when it comes to poker matters, we tend to usually agree. So even though we're people with nothing in common politically, as far as the way we see the poker community, we tend to agree, and I've never heard anything shady about Ryan. He's been in some controversies and arguments with people, but you know, really, he's never done anything shady, in my opinion. However, because he has some enemies, it came out, I don't know, five years ago or so, that when he was around 20 years old, like in 2010, he wrote some really, really racist things, both in some Skype chats and uh, in some poker chats and on 2 Plus 2. So people went and dug that up. And it was pretty humiliating for him because here's this left-wing activist out there telling people about uh, homophobic behavior, this and that, and then it turns out... uh, there is this uh, racism. Now, I, I don't really think he should be defined by this because it was in 2010, he was 20 years old, and while some of the language he used was not even acceptable in 2010 and was pretty offensive, still he was 20, and yes, even in 2010, the world was different as far as the type of stuff that was considered really outrageous. Which, again, it wasn't acceptable language in 2010 either, but it, it would be much worse now. Like, you see it now, it looks horrible. It looked less horrible in 2010, and the fact that he was like 20 years old and just like an anonymous figure online, 
Yeah, you can kind of see the whole thing. You can't, you can't condemn his whole life based upon that. And since then, in the last 14 years, while some people may not like his personality or, or social media presence, he has been a good citizen in poker. So that's really how I see him. But there are people that don't like him. And what happened was uh, when he brought this up, and I have no idea why they chose this thread to do it, but he put a link to the 2 plus 2 thread, which is actually how I learned about this whole thing when Ryan posted the link to the 2 plus 2 thread. And Ryan didn't post in the thread, by the way. <laughs> Ryan was just like trying to bring people's attention to it, which is totally fine. But then people started responding to his thread, bringing up the old screenshots from 2010 of Ryan being racist. And Ryan then just deleted the whole thread. <laughs> so I think Ryan realized like this wasn't worth it to dredge all this up again. And it was funny because all these people were like acting out like, oh my God, Ryan really said that? Well, we went through this already. This was like a five-year-old story. This is something discovered like five years ago about something that happened in 2010. So it's not good for Ryan. It damaged his reputation. And he said some very inappropriate and racist things. And I'm sure at this point he's ashamed of it. But, you know, it happened in 2010. It's over. And he took his lumps for it at the time, and rightfully so. And you got to move on. You, you can't define his whole life on that. So when he's posting about Anthony Zinno... And just linking a 2 plus 2 thread, he wasn't even commenting. He's just like, you know, here's a thread about Anthony Zitto and linked it. And then you have people responding to that, trolling him with these screenshots. So Ryan just deleted the thread. Now, the reason I'm telling you this whole story, this wouldn't be something even worth mentioning on the show, is for whatever reason, Karel Fiuma, the alleged victim here, chose that thread to make his statement. So he actually responded to a deleted tweet. I have no idea why. I think Corel Theoma is not very social media or computer literate, because there's also evidence, if you look at his Twitter, that he may have been fished or hacked at some point, because he sees some like scammy NFT postings it looks like he didn't make. It looks like someone got into his account. So I have to imagine this is just a guy who isn't very good with computers or social media. So what had happened was someone had asked about what happened. They said, if it's deleted, what was it? And then Ryan said back, he denied it and asked me to remove it. But watch the recent Only Friends for it 60 minutes in. So Ryan's claiming that he removed it because Anthony Zeno denied it and asked him to delete it, which I guess is possible because Zeno apparently was going to be asking him to delete it. But I think Ryan kind of used that as an excuse to remove it because people were trolling him about the old racist stuff, which, which again, people shouldn't have been doing here. Like, like, why do that here five years after this already came out in the first place? Like, Ryan was trying to spread awareness about something that people should know. <laughs> Why were people showing up and trolling him with old stuff about him being a racist in 2010? Like, it's just not the right place and time. But anyway, it was a deleted thread. These were responses to a deleted thread. And then Corel Theuma responded in that thread. And that's his only real statement. So let me read it to you. Isn't that weird? Like, of all places to make the statement. And by the way, if you want to look for Corel Theuma on Twitter, it's Corel, C-O-R-E-L underscore Theuma, T-H-E-U-M-A. So he wrote back to Ryan, well, as the victim, I'm confirming it, so you can feel free to put it back up. Didn't realize Zeno had the authority to limit freedom of speech now. I'm working on getting my hands on the police report. We'll share once I have it. So first he's giving Ryan a hard time for deleting the thread because Zeno asked him to. But again, I don't think Corel knew the history of the other posts in that thread <laughs> that were attacking Ryan about the racism stuff. 
Carell goes on to write, just so I have my side of the story published, because I don't want people to assume my silence as a form of shadiness. After bagging the 3K, I left my backpack under my chair, which, yes, was a mistake, like most of you have made. As I got to my cab outside Encore, I realized and sprinted back down the long hallway to retrieve my bag. Cameras can show this. The dealer was still at our table fixing the cards. I did not find the bag there. I asked security. I asked lost and found. Nothing. Let me stop right there. He claims that he just left the bag there under the chair and just forgot it was there and walked off. And he was about to get in the cab. He's like, oh, shit, I don't have my bag. And so he didn't get in the cab, went back into the Encore, and sprinted down a long hallway, which he says you can even find on the camera if that ever gets released. And that when he got back there, the dealer was still sitting at the table. Now, that's important, because if Zinno came in, for whatever reason, if he came back into the room and sees the whole room just abandoned, and there's just this bag sitting under an empty table with nobody at it, you could think, okay... He's grabbing this bag because if he doesn't grab it and bring it to security, somebody else will who might just steal it. So he was trying to be a good Samaritan by grabbing the bag. But if the dealer's sitting there, it's a different story. If the dealer's sitting there, then all Anthony has to do is say, hey, whose bag is this? And then the dealer would say whether he knows or not. And they say, well, who can I bring this to? Or can you call the floor man over? And then turn it in right then. Or he can even say, can you call the floor man over? I think this belongs to my girlfriend, but I'm not sure. I, you know, Let's just open this together. But to walk off with it to the bathroom when the dealer's still there, when he takes the bag, is very different than taking the bag from an empty table, thinking that if he doesn't take it, somebody else will. Now, of course, this is Corell's story, but if that is really what happened and the camera shows that a dealer was at the table that when Zeno took it, that does make it worse. Corell goes on to write, The next day, I called Lost and Found's office, and they told me that someone had returned the bag, but it only had $1,000 in it, when I know for a fact and will do my best to prove that I had twenty k in it. So it looks like maybe he lost nineteen k. Those close to me know my financial circumstances, so there's simply no need for me to lie about the amount. Now, he doesn't directly say, Hey, guys, I'm rich. I wouldn't pretend to have lost nineteen k, but that's what he's saying without directly saying it. He's saying those who know me realize that I would have no need to make a lot of drama over this to somehow get 19K that I really didn't have in the first place because I have plenty of money. This would never be worth it to me. I went to pick up the bag back and file the police report. That night I was called in by the high-up security officers at the Encore. They said Metro, meaning the Las Vegas police, was there and wanted to speak to me as they had the suspect in custody. Wow. Once I arrived, I saw Anthony Zeno locked up being questioned. Now I don't know where he was locked up. <laughs> Did they actually see him in a jail cell? Like, I don't know what they mean by locked up. He might just mean that Anthony Zeno was sitting there in cuffs or just being detained somewhere. I'm not sure what he means by locked up. I have not reviewed the footage myself. I can only go with what security officers shared with me that night and the reason they told me he was banned from the Wynn properties for good. There was footage of Anthony taking the bag and going to the bathroom with it. This will be my last public statement on the matter. I am working with law enforcement and my lawyers to track down the police report. Once I get my hands on it, I'll share my findings under the guidance of my legal team. Then Jesse Lonis responded to this 
And Jesse Lonis is a pretty prolific tournament pro himself. So he's not just like a nobody. Jesse Lonis responded and said, I'm friends with Corell and can guarantee he's not lying. He's a very honest and good dude. Has been a real nice and bright spot in our poker community. I know Zeno has been nice to a lot of us, but this behavior is obviously over the line. It sucks this has to be true. So the fact that Jesse Lonis is validating this and saying, hey, you guys may not know Corell, but I do, and he's an honest guy, and he wouldn't make this up, that's pretty strong. That is pretty strong. Jesse Lonis has almost $7 million in uh, Hinden Mob earnings himself. So this is not a nobody by any means. And he's validating that Corell is a decent guy and wouldn't make this up. So this would be very, very shocking if this was like a made-up story or if Corell's version of events were not true. The only thing that I guess is slightly possible is that Corell thought he had the 20K in there when he only had 1K. But I don't want this to be mistaken for me being gullible or for making excuses for Anthony Zinno. In fact, in the Poker Fraud Alert thread, a former member tried to troll me a bit and say that I was making excuses for Zinno because he was nice to me at the table. And I said, no, (laughs) Zinno's not my friend. He's never been my friend. I don't have any problems with him. I didn't have a bad view of him prior to this whole thing. But I have no reason to defend him or to run interference for him. I was just stating all possibilities, but I was also very careful to state my personal opinion. And my personal opinion was, and still is, that he's guilty of this. Because everything points that direction. Maybe I'll turn out to be wrong, but I'd be surprised if that were the case. So, where do we stand right now? Anthony Zeno apparently has been messaging people privately, including me. To me, he didn't say much. He kept saying, well, let's talk on the phone. And then I said, okay. And then it just never happened. With others, they've been alleging that he's been messaging them and asking them to take any negative posts down or posts down with stories about him. Like someone posted a story that he approached them at the win in that same series and asked to be staked. And then he supposedly messaged that person and asked them to take the post down, which at the very least shows he's watching the whole thing. Like, why not just address this? Why not just come forward and address this? You, you don't have to say anything that will incriminate yourself. If you're worried about a criminal case, just say whatever you can without incriminating yourself. I and mean, if they've got you on camera taking that backpack and walking to the bathroom, then it's not going to incriminate yourself to admit that you took the backpack and walked to the bathroom and then returned it, and then explain why you did it. And if your explanation as to why you did it is something that's going to get you in trouble later, then you're probably guilty of something. Because if you really just thought it was your girlfriend's backpack, well, put that out there, explain the whole thing, have her corroborate it, have someone corroborate that she was right there massaging somebody, at least put some doubt in people's minds. <laughs> just sitting here silent about it, it's not going to work. Or if you don't want to say anything yourself and possibly incriminate yourself, even if you didn't really do anything, like at least put out a story through somebody that knows you. This just doesn't look good. A guy who's supposedly going around asking for stakes and this happens. So you just never know in poker. You just never know how people are really doing. And I'm not really a tournament player. 
That's why you usually only see me at tournaments at the World Series of Poker. And even there, I don't play a very aggressive schedule. One, because I have a family, so I kind of go back and forth between the World Series and home. And then also, I'm just playing for fun. I'm not under the delusion that I'm one of the tournament greats, because I'm not. I try to play events where I feel I have a chance to be competitive. And in some of them, I have been competitive. I, I do have more than a million dollars in caches, and I have fewer than a million dollars in buy-in. So I am up lifetime in tournaments, but I'm not a tournament pro. And there are people in these events that are better than me, and I'm aware of that. But I play these for fun. I play cash games for money. And tournaments is one of these things I play it for fun, and I hope to make money. If I do, I do. If I don't, I don't. That's the way it goes. But he's got to say something soon, or his reputation is going to be in the toilet, and it might already be, especially if he did it. Like If he actually did it, there's nothing he can say. He can try to make an excuse, but no one's going to believe it. So if he is innocent, he needs to come forward and make it clear. Because you're not going to incriminate yourself by explaining something that makes you innocent. And you know, if you are looking for stakes, the last thing you want is something like this following you around. You're not going to get stakes being known as the backpack thief. Like, there may be some people that will stake you because of your success, but you're going to get a lot fewer people staking you than if this hadn't happened. By the way, if Anthony still wants to talk to me, he's welcome to. The phone call didn't happen because it was on his end. He just kind of ghosted me, which is fine. He doesn't have to talk to me. It was his idea to talk to me. And then he didn't talk to me. But if he still wants to talk to me, he can. And I'll be fair about it. I can tell him I'm not going to just remove the thread because he doesn't like it. That's not how my site works. But if he wants me to put out a statement from him, or he wants to explain things that he doesn't necessarily want out in public yet, he can do so. That's not going to make me remove the thread, but it might change my opinion a little bit. It's got to be believable, though. So if he'd still like to talk to me, especially if he really is innocent, he can go ahead and do so, and I'll have an open mind, and I'll be respectful in the conversation no matter what. But if this is something he did then it's going to be hard to live down. This is seen as worse by the community than scamming, even though they're both a form of theft. Because this is just seen as so blatant to actually put your hand on somebody else's property and just walk off with it, and then empty it out, empty the cash out, and then give back the mostly empty bag at that point. If that's really what happened, that's much more blatant and brazen than just like lying about that you have money coming. Can I borrow 20K right now in the casino? Someone gives it to you and then you really don't have money coming and then you never pay them. Like both are a form of theft, but one is viewed as much worse than the other. And one is much more common than the other. There's all kinds of little scams that happen in poker all the time where people borrow money under false pretenses or they just refuse to pay back what they owe or they stiff backers. There's all kinds of these scams we've talked about over the years here. But the just blatant stealing of people's property in the poker room doesn't happen all that often. So when that happens, and when it's a matter of like 20k, that really gets everyone's attention. And it especially gets their attention when it's a prominent poker pro who has four bracelets and was seen throughout the 2010s really kicking ass. 775-FRAUD-55-775-372- 8355 is the number if you'd like to call or text. Got a text from the 646 area code. Of course, Corel could have chunked it off in the pits 
and or slot machines prior and claim 19k was missing. Players' card activity and win-loss from December from win rewards can help his case, I guess. It's a good point. I don't think that's what happened. But, yeah, they should check into that, too. They should check that Corell did not play in the casino in between when he brought the backpack and when he claimed he was missing. From the 972, I wonder if the police interviewed the dealer. That's a good question. If they didn't, they should. So if you want to text me, 775-372-8355, I will read it throughout the show. If you want to text me after the show's over, because you're listening in the archives, you're welcome to. If you're listening for the first time and you're wondering why I'm saying archives that way, yes, it is on purpose. Okay, let's move on and talk about the Fountain Blue, which would otherwise be our lead story if this hadn't happened. So the Fountain Blue has an interesting history in that it was being built since 2007, but it did not open until December 2023. And that was because of the 2008 housing market and bank crisis. And they essentially ran out of money to keep building it. It just sat there in an unfinished state for a very long time and changed ownership a few times before finally being completed and finally opening in December of 2023. And we've discussed this fairly recently on the show, so I'm not going to go through that whole history. I visited the Fountain Blue, and it was a nice place. It had kind of a retro luxury sort of look to it. It had a more interesting appearance than Resorts World, which while also a new nice property very close to Fountain Blue is just very generic where Fountain Blue has more of a memorable style to it. But I did notice one thing pulling into Fountain Blue before I even got in there that I had a negative opinion on. That was the parking lot that I actually found myself going in and out of the parking lot without even realizing it. I was going in there to park. All of a sudden I'm out of the lot. (laughs) And I'm like, how does this happen? I've never had that happen in my life. And I've driven a lot of confusing lots in my time driving. I've been driving now for 36 years. And I've never accidentally left a parking lot before parking in there when I intend to park in there. But that's what happened in Fountain Blue. And I asked my girlfriend, am I stupid? Like, what happened here? She, she didn't know either. She thought, I, I, I don't know how this happened either. It was really weird. I asked my son. He said the same thing. He didn't know how this happened. And then it was a pain in the ass to undo. Anyway, once I got parked and I got in there, it was a nice place. But I knew it might have some challenges as far as succeeding. It does not have a good location. It is North Strip, and people just don't like to go to the North Strip. So you have to get people over there. They're not going to just stroll in there. It's not like being Center Strip where the Aria is. So this is not going to be an instant success. They have to draw people to the property. And Resorts World has had the same problem. Resorts World is close to Fountain Blue. There's some hope that between the two properties, maybe this can become a new area of Vegas that people like to go to and walk around. But the area still isn't all that great. It's not terrible, but it's not all that great. And there's things around there that don't really fit in with what's supposed to be a luxurious environment. There's a Denny's, there's a little strip mall, there's just stuff that people are meandering around, like locals just meandering around these cheap places 
late at night, and this is just not an area people really want to walk at night, unlike Center Strip, where people walk that at all times of day and night and feel pretty safe. And also, it's just a matter of distance. It's just not something you're going to be able to walk to unless you want to make a very long walk from Center Strip. So they've already got that challenge, as Resorts World does. And they've also had some resignations or firings of various executives. They had already lost three high-level executives within the first few weeks that they opened. I think somewhere before opening, but by the time they've been open for a few weeks, they'd already lost three high-level executives, which is pretty surprising. And now they've lost a fourth, and they are now trying to bring on a new president of Fountain Blue because they got rid of their president as well. So Fountain Blue has been anything but smooth sailing for them. And there's a lot of skepticism that given how expensive the property is to operate, because it's very large, so it's very expensive to run, that maybe it won't succeed. It has to generate a lot of money just to break even. So the last thing you want when you're a property like that, you just opened back in December, you're having trouble convincing people to come down there and spend money or even to walk in. The last thing you want is any kind of negative social media buzz. You really have to avoid that. And therefore, you really have to be careful that you do not have anything going on at your property that is going to get you mocked or heavily criticized. Now, yeah, everybody's a critic, and it is easy to draw the ire of someone who's just a negative Nancy or maybe just happened to have a bad experience there and wants an excuse to criticize you. And when you're a very large property, you're going to have some unhappy customers, especially in a gambling environment where people lose money and just get to be in a foul mood. I'm aware of all that. But you've got to make sure not to make obvious boneheaded mistakes that can make you look bad. Because, you know, on those old head and shoulders commercials, they said you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Well, that's very true about new casino properties, especially ones that are just not going to automatically get a lot of traffic walking in. So you got to be real careful. You can't do things that other more established properties can do to take a chance where if something embarrassing happens, people just kind of laugh at it and move on. You don't want to be defined by something that happens early on that is embarrassing. But that is exactly what happened to Fountain Blue. And it ended up making the national news and for the reasons they did not want. So you may have heard about it by now. It has been referred to as Nacho Gate. And this came from a Twitter post by a guy named Mike Herman, who's at MU Tiger Mike on Twitter. And he wrote, hey, Fountain Blue, we waited an hour for food in the sports book, and this is our nachos? Come on, man. And he posted a picture of the nachos, and it had four very nice-looking dipping sauces, including what looks like guacamole and three other sauces. And the nachos themselves look pretty good, but one little problem. There were six chips total. <laughs> And this is not after Mike ate some of it. This was the plate that came to him. He waited an hour. He ordered nachos for $24. And they brought him nachos with six chips. Six. Well, this really, really took off. 
people started sharing this like crazy. At the time I'm broadcasting this, and keep in mind this was posted only eight days ago, the evening of January 22nd. In those eight days, and most of it near the beginning, it got 1.4 million views. 1.4 million. So that's not good publicity at all. That is playing right into the current narrative about Las Vegas that is negative. And that is, for the average tourist, you're priced out. Everything is super expensive. You get nickel and dimed. You don't get value for your money. And while Fountain Blue is supposed to be a higher-end resort where you're not going to be getting a bargain, this is really exactly the type of thing that comes to someone's mind. That they are in a sports book, which is not a fine restaurant. You know, It's not like you're at a fine dining, eclectic restaurant. You're, you're in the sports book. You see nachos. You go, yeah, nachos, that sounds good. You expect this big plate of nachos to be put in front of you. You don't love paying $24 for nachos, but you're like, okay, that's the premium of being in a place like a Fountain Blue. But at least I'll get a nice-sized portion of nachos, and then they drop six chips in front of you. Here's your nachos for $24, sir. I kid you not, there's actually more sauce than chips there. So it just looked really, really bad. People picture themselves in that situation. They picture themselves at the sports book and ordering nachos and expecting a big, tall plate of a lot of chips, and there's six chips there that they just paid 24 bucks for, and that's after waiting an hour. That puts an exclamation mark on all the narratives about what Vegas has become. That Vegas is for pretentious, rich people who don't care about money, and not just for the average middle-class guy. And that's why it resonated with so many people, because this is so outrageous to serve a six-chip plate of nachos for $24 in the sports book of all places. So this started being shared everywhere. And this started appearing on national news sites. And the Las Vegas Review-Journal covered it. This became a big deal. Even though, if you think about it, it's kind of stupid. It was just a guy ordered nachos and got an embarrassingly small portion. This shouldn't be a major story, but it became a major story. This became the biggest story about Vegas in the second half of January 2024. Nachos. Can you believe it? But it really did. I know a lot of our listeners here are older, so some of you will remember this. In the 1970s, Avis, which then was a smaller company than it is today, the rental car company, they had a campaign that went, when you're number two, you try harder. Now, you'll sometimes still see part of that slogan today, where they say, Avis, we try harder. But they don't want to say the number two part because they've become very big now and people don't associate them as being number two or the underdog. And that's been the case for a very long time. But back in the early 70s, Avis was a distance number two to Hertz. So in order to try to get business away from Hertz, they were proudly taking the number two rank and saying, hey, we may not be the most popular, but we're trying harder because we're number two. And that always stuck with me, not about Avis in particular, but just the whole concept of when you're number two, you try harder. And that's true in a lot of areas of life. When you're behind and when you're trying to catch up, you need to try harder than the one who's ahead. 
And then once you get there, then you can ease up somewhat. You can't ease up too much or you'll get past. But you have to put extra effort in when you are number two. Or even behind number two. So Fountain Blue is the equivalent of number two here. I don't mean number two in all of Vegas, that'd be pretty good. But number two meaning that they're trying to get established, they're trying to get going, they're trying to get people down there. They're trying to become the new destination for those who want to go to a high-end property on the Strip. They're trying to convince people not to go to the Aria, not to go to the Bellagio, not to go to the Cosmopolitan, but to go to Fountain Blue. Not even to go to Resorts World across the street. So when you're number two, you try harder. So that means even if you'd like to serve six-chip nachos for $24, you don't. You don't take that chance. Why? Because it can become embarrassing. You do not want someone taking a picture of that, putting it on Twitter, and everyone laughing at you. So whatever extra profits you think you're going to get for serving a six-chip nacho plate for $24, don't. It's not going to be worth it. You can't take that chance when you're number two. And that's what they were not getting. Another huge mistake they made was that apparently others have complained about this. This Mike guy was not the first one to complain. And by the way, Mike is not just an average tourist. Mike is a local who works at the Rio in a pretty high position there in the casino. So it's possible he did this on purpose to try to slam Fountain Blue But someone pointed out Fountain Blue and Rio have different markets, even though Rio just had a renovation and they're trying to be like a high-end property. Yeah, you're not going to see many people who are potential customers of Fountain Blue going to the Rio, is the truth. But still, this guy was not completely neutral. But let's put that aside. This was a real and accurate picture of those nachos, and nobody's disputing that. And I think Mike really did just order it, not expecting it to come like this. But apparently they got complaints about the size of the nachos. This wasn't the first time they've heard about it. Now, this may be the first time it was posted on social media, but they got a number of complaints and somehow it didn't make it up to the top. Somehow it didn't make it to those who would need to know about it. And that's a big mistake. If you're opening a new hotel that's going to need some help to have a good buzz, and you definitely don't want a negative story going around social media about your hotel and making your hotel a laughingstock. You've got to have your ear to the ground completely. You've got to have complete awareness of every department and tell every department head to let you know if there are repeated customer complaints about any particular thing and then address it. That's what you've got to do. So when people are getting these nachos and over and over and over saying, what? I can't believe I paid $24 for this. What? Is this really the whole portion? I really get six chips? Is this really true? If you're getting that over and over and over, then that restaurant should report to the food and beverage manager that people keep complaining about this, who should then report it to someone above him. And that person should make the decision to not let this happen. Or the food and beverage manager should just put a stop to it. Whatever it is, this should never have happened in the first place. Now, how did Fountain Blue respond to this on social media? Because they did give a response, not right away, but they did respond to it. Well, the response was not very good at all. Fountain Blue responded the next day on January 23rd. Hello, Mike. We are disappointed to hear that you waited an hour for your meal, and we value your feedback regarding this menu item. Our priority is ensuring an elevated dining experience for every guest. If you'd like to discuss what happened, 
please DM us with further details. <laughs> that is a terrible response. That's a terrible response. This is already going viral at this point. This is already a laughing stock at this point. You don't put up a corporate sounding response to a tweet that is going viral that's making your property look stupid. You put up that type of response if someone says, hey, I was in the sports book today and I ordered food and it took an hour to come. Man, what's the problem here? Then you put up the corporate response saying, uh, we're sorry about that. We didn't expect it to take this long. Uh, please DM us. Uh, we'd like to discuss your experience with you. That, that's not a big deal if you respond that way. But when something's going viral that you have, are serving a six-chip nacho dish for $24 and everyone's laughing at your property and making fun of you, you don't come back with, Hi, Mike. Uh, We're disappointed to hear you waited an hour for your meal, and we value your feedback. Our priority is ensuring an elevated dining experience. What does that even mean, an elevated dining experience? Do they mean an elevated price for six nachos? Because they already delivered that for sure. You do not ever give a corporate-sounding response to something that is embarrassing to your company on social media. Your only hope at that point is to respond like a human being and to lean into it acknowledge what happened, apologize for it, and then overcorrect the problem. You don't treat this like, hey, uh, Mike, uh, message us privately. We'll, we'll talk about your dissatisfaction. It's way too late for that at that point. So they really blew their first response. Someone named Wes McHugh responded, hey, Fountain Blue, you're getting about $110,000 worth of earned social media impressions for something that will cause everyone who sees it never to set foot in your property. Then the regular social media person uses a stock negative Yelp review response. Big yikes. (laughs) He's right. He went on to write, call your boss for help on this one. You're probably getting fired. Yeah, whoever gave that response, they had no clue how social media works. How are you running the Fountain Blue social media account if this is your response? Though, Though maybe some idiot who doesn't run the social media account took it over to write that, who doesn't understand how social media works. But whoever wrote that was really dumb. They later corrected it, by the way. They later put a better response, which we'll get to. Well, as you might guess, lots of other properties around Las Vegas started posting pictures of their own nachos and showed how large they were. And what a good value they were compared to what Fountain Blue gives. So their nachos were cheaper and much more plentiful. And you knew that was going to happen. Fountain Blue on January 25th, now three days after the whole thing and after more than a million people had seen it, and after national media was covering it, everyone's laughing at them, they finally got it. They tweeted, the tavern menu... And Tavern is, I guess, the place that serves the food in the sports book. The Tavern menu was designed to be, quote, bar food favorites all grown up. We hope you'll excuse our growing pains while the nachos went through their awkward phase. We're thrilled to report they've matured into one stacked snack. And then they posted a picture of the new nachos. So the six chip nachos is gone. You can't get that anymore. And they posted a fairly big looking dish of a lot of chips with cheese on them with what looks like uh, guacamole on top, even a little garnish on top of that, and looks like maybe some bacon bits. So that's the new nachos, and people ask them if it has 
a higher price? And they responded, no, it's actually $21. So it went down by $3, and now you get a lot more of it. Now, that wasn't a bad response, albeit days late, and albeit after blowing the response in the first place. But that's generally what they should have done. They should have immediately jumped on it and admitted that this was a mistake and then quickly changed the dish. I did notice something, though, about the new picture. I didn't say it at the time, but I noticed it. The original six-chip nachos was very, very small. It was laughably small, but it wasn't necessarily bad. That is bad tasting. It was far too small for sure. But how did it taste? Well, Chicago Joey, Joey Ingram, happened to have ordered that at Fountain Blue before all the controversy, and he had the exact same thought when he got it as this Mike guy did. But then Joey ate it, and he thought it was excellent. He thought it was one of the best nachos he's ever had, but it was six chips, and he was still hungry. So he had mixed feelings. He thought this is a horrible value, and the portion was horrendous, but boy, it was really good. And that is because it looked like this was all made from scratch. It didn't look like the nachos that you would picture that you would get anywhere else. It wasn't a bunch of tortilla chips that were dumped from a bag and then cheese put on them and then some other stuff done and you, and you get it. Like that's, that's what you'd expect nachos to be. These were individual chips that were kind of small and round. They weren't the normal chips triangular shape. And they were covered in cheese but it looked like covered in cheese, kind of made individually. It didn't look like they just poured cheese on top of it. And the sauces all looked very good. It looked like they were very high-quality sauces. Way too much sauce for six chips, but uh, the quality of the sauce, from what I could tell in the picture, looked excellent. The chips themselves, what little there was of them, looked really good. So it looked like a very good dish. I totally believe... Chicago Joey's report that the whole thing tasted very good. It was just tiny. The new nachos looks very much like traditional nachos with a few extras on it. So it doesn't look like the nachos you're going to get in 7-Eleven. doesn't look like the nachos that they showed Beavis and Butthead eating in the 90s all the time. But it still looks like nachos. looks like a bunch of tortilla chips that could have easily come from a bag with cheese on top of them, with Something else on top of that, maybe bacon bits, maybe something else, hard to tell in the picture, with a lot of uh, guacamole on the top and some other garnishes. So yeah, it's kind of a high-end nacho dish, the new one, but it's still just ordinary, regular chips that you'd get out of a Tostitos bag. At least that's kind of what it looks like. So it's nothing special. So what's too bad here for Fountain Blue is that their real mistake was calling it nachos. If they called it gourmet tortilla bites... Yeah, there would have been some grumbling about the portion, but people would have just dismissed it. Okay, well, this is a high-end place and kind of pretentious, and yeah, they're overcharging for this, and oh, well, this tastes really good. Too bad there's not more of it. That would be people's reactions if they had the same dish but not called nachos. Just call it something unique where you don't have a preconceived expectation of the portion size. It was the fact they called it nachos where it didn't really resemble nachos that much. And I think what they were trying to do there was make these high-end nachos. Call it nachos, then you taste them and go, oh my God, this is so good. This is way better than the nachos I typically get. 
but they blew it because the portion was so embarrassingly small. And you can't say that I'm being a Monday morning quarterback here because anyone familiar with nachos should know this. Everybody should know what the typical portion size is for nachos and that this was way, way, way smaller than that. And it's in a sports book of all things. Even if it's a place that's a higher-end tapas-type place or whatever this is, this tavern that's in the sports book, it's still in the sports book and you're ordering nachos, which is a typical thing you'd expect to be served in a sports book at a bar there, and then you get something that's six chips, how could anyone design this and call it nachos and not expect a backlash, not expect disappointment? So whenever you make a menu, you have to make sure that if there's a previous belief about something that you are offering, that it is going to match that belief, at least in all ways that are not going to be considered negative. If you're going to exceed the belief of what it's going to be, and it's way better, then that's great. But you don't want people to think the portion is going to be a certain size, and then it's many times smaller than that. What else could they have done here, aside from offering this new nachos in the first place and not the original one that got mocked? And not just calling it something different, which would have also been a thing they could have done. But if they still wanted to call it nachos, all they had to do was like triple the portion, it would have been fine. It still would not have been as big as normal nachos or even the nachos they're selling now. But if you had 18 chips and the dish was very good, it would fill the plate enough to where it wouldn't be outrageous looking. The reason this picture went so viral is because you have six chips on a big plate with four sauces that are clearly much bigger than the chips themselves. It looks like you can use almost none of the sauce after you've eaten the whole thing because it's so small. It's a very bad look when the sauces are far bigger than the nachos themselves. But that, that was the case here. So the whole thing had such terrible optics. The $24 price tag, the six chips when it's called nachos, being smaller than the sauce. And you've got to be aware of this when you're putting out nachos. But if they had tripled the portion, if they gave 18 chips, while that's still small, and these were not large chips either, so... It still would have been smaller than what people typically get when they get nachos, but not so much smaller that it's outrageous, and it would have covered enough of the plate, and it would have been bigger than the sauce then with 18 chips. And six chips just sounds so much worse than 18. Think about it. You hear about a six-chip nacho plate for $24, and you go, oh my god, Like, how could they sell that? That's crazy. That's outrageous. What if someone said, hey, look at this. They sold me this nachos plate with only 18 chips for $24. Well, you're not going to think that was a great value, but it's not going to sound as outrageous. It's not going to jump out at you like six chips. So if they made like 18 chips, 20 chips, it would have been fine, especially if it tasted as good as people are claiming it tastes, which now you can't even try anymore because they took it away. But why not do that? I can't imagine that they would have not been able to give 18 chips instead of six and serve it for $24 and not make money. Like I, I can't imagine that's the case. So they might like to serve only six chips, but you shouldn't because you're number two and you need to try harder. You need to be very careful not to make mistakes like this. You also have to think about the positive about what you're trying to do and how it can help you. So let's go back to the 18 chip thing. If you have 18 chips there and they taste really good and people really enjoy it and it's not embarrassingly small, then maybe you'll get good press about this. It won't go viral like the bad press, 
bad press always goes viral much more than good press would. But still, you will get some good word of mouth. And people may start saying, hey, you know, you know what's really good in that sports book, that tavern place? Is those nachos. There's nothing like nachos you've ever eaten. They look really good. The whole thing's homemade. It's not just a bunch of tortilla chips dumped into a plate and cheese on top of them. Like, these are really good. It looks like they're really putting care into this. This is excellent. You should order it. And then people will go there. They'll order it. They'll really enjoy it. And it'll be one thing that makes them want to come back to Fountain Blue. Because it doesn't take a lot to make people have a good memory of a place and want to come back there, especially if it's something unique. So why not lean into the fact that this seems to be something that is tasty and is unusual in a good way and make the portion big enough to where people aren't going to be upset. So you can't hide behind pretension and say, well, we're going to give you six chip nachos and if you're not happy with that, then you're just a ghost diner and, well, we don't want your kind here anyway. You can't do that when you have a giant resort you've got to fill with a ton of people. You can't. You can't do things that are embarrassing. You can't do things that are going to look stupid on social media. You can't do things that make it look like that you are the perfect example of terrible value in Vegas, which people have been talking about now for many years. You don't want to walk right into that stereotype. And then when this does happen, you've got to jump on it immediately and correct it. When people are making fun of you on social media, you don't respond with a, hey, DM us and let us know your comments. We're sorry it took an hour. That's your response? So it's just complete cluelessness. Just think of how much money has gone into this Fountain Blue. Think of how much money they're spending daily to keep operations going and to harm their reputation as much as they did over nachos and over their response to the nachos. It's crazy. So you've got to have management that understands. You've got to have management that understands social media You've got to understand generating a good buzz. You've got to understand acting like a human being. Make sure people's concerns are heard. You've got to understand these or you shouldn't work in these type of positions, especially at a place that is just establishing itself. Once you've already got a reputation that's good, then you can ease up. Then you can hire people who aren't as good at these things. But at the beginning, you've got to do it right. You've got to do everything right. They didn't. Very few people are discussing what I just discussed about the difference between the two nachos and how the first one actually looked better taste-wise and more looked more unique taste-wise. I, I saw one other person talking about it, and that was a Vegas area writer named Corey Levitan, whose articles I actually used to read back in the 90s in a totally different publication in California that had nothing to do with gambling. Very surprised to see him pop back up. I always liked his articles, though. So I'm glad to see him in the gambling world. But Corey posted these on his Facebook and said, you know, am I the only one to think this, that the other nachos looked better, even if they were smaller? And I said, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. Not that I'd be happy with that portion, but I'm just saying, like, why can't they make just a bigger portion of the original nachos or make two options? But I think they just want to run away from those original nachos because they are so embarrassing, which I don't blame them at this point. They just should have done it right in the first place. But yeah, also just don't call them nachos if you don't want people to expect the nachos portion. So Fountain Blue does one stupid thing after another. It's not a good sign. I think that property is going to have some trouble. It looks very nice. It's a nice place. It's just, I don't think it's going to generate the money they need.
I don't know if that North Strip area is ever going to be viable for high-end places. Remember the Sahara got renovated and called the SLS. Supposed to be a high-end place. That didn't go anywhere. That was a complete fail. And I knew it. I knew that was going to happen. But if you're going to open over there, you've really got to bring people there and make people want to come and have a great impression all around of your property that'll make them want to make that extra effort. I've brought up Circa a number of times recently. They're very good at social media. They have done a good job of changing the expectation of what you'll find downtown. They're a new ground-up property in downtown Las Vegas where most of the higher-end clientele, or even middle-higher-end clientele, does not go anymore downtown. But they're trying to say, hey, look, we're a good place downtown, and we respect the customer. We listen to the customer. We are good at social media and listen to you through social media. You feel like you're communicating with human beings and not just cold, faceless corporate people behind the account. And it's worked. I don't know how their financials look, but it seems like that they have made a lot of correct moves, at least as correct as they can be, being a place downtown that's higher end. The only thing that's stupid that's ongoing here, I don't know why they don't just fix it, is the stupidity with the charging tax on comps, which they shouldn't be doing. We discussed this on a recent show. There's a lawsuit about this, and yet they're still doing it, last I heard. And it's just dumb. Like, <laughs> If you made a mistake with charging tax on comps, then just stop doing it. Stop worrying about how it's going to affect the lawsuit, blah, blah, blah. Just, just stop doing it, because it's wrong. It's pissing people off. You're not supposed to be collecting tax on these comps. So why keep doing it? So that's the one thing that confuses me about Circa. Why would they continue to have that as a thorn in their side? It's nothing like this Nacho Gate, which got massive publicity. This tax-related lawsuit is small news compared to that. I'm just saying that's a weird thing that Circa is sticking to. It's a strange hill to die on. Moving on, I'm going to tell you a less amusing story. I don't like talking about death on this show, but we have to every so often. The poker world has a lot of people, and some of them will die. Some of them that die are very old, and not surprising that they pass away, such as Doyle Brunson. And others die way before their time, and that's especially sad. Some of the people who die young end up passing away as a result of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, suicide, violence, accidents, or some kind of hereditary problem that they already knew they had. Think of Dusty Schmidt, who passed away in his 40s. Nice guy, too, but he had been battling with major health problems his entire life, especially involving his heart, and that ended up killing him at a young age. So you're going to have some of that too. People who just have the misfortune of having been born with some kind of major hereditary problem that was going to kill them far before their senior years. And sometimes people just pass away due to pure bad luck. And the one we're going to talk about now seems to be in that category. Perry Friedman is an interesting guy, or I'm sorry to say, was an interesting guy because he passed away. 
He's someone who's kind of known in poker, but not a huge name. He was still playing poker all the way through this past World Series, even though presumably he was pretty sick by this last one. A lot of people remember him, especially those around in the 2000s, when he was more prominent. Perry Friedman was not one of these old-school street hustler types that made it into poker in the early days, and really early days all the way up through the early 2000s. He was one of the group of intellectuals who made it to the game. And in present day, you kind of have a combination of both. You have those who are really not very book smart, but somehow have a natural talent and feel for the game of poker and succeed through that. And then you have others who are very, very intelligent people, in some cases with some very nice educational accomplishments and career accomplishments that have been able to apply their intellectual ability to learning the best strategies of the game and succeed that way. So Perry Friedman was definitely in the intellectual category. He was someone who was recognized as a really, really, really smart guy from a very young age. And he was also known as a nice guy, a very pleasant guy to have around, a guy who always seemed to be in a good mood, someone who just didn't seem to get upset very easily, someone who was personable and talked a lot at the poker table, but not in an annoying way, but just kind of in a fun way. He was part of the poker community before the poker boom, which began in 2003. So he was around well before that. He was known as one of the Tilt Boys. And they released a book, in fact, called Tales from the Tilt Boys, written by the Tilt Boys. Phil Gordon was one of them, by the way. But Perry Friedman was part of this group. It's a group of five people, and they wrote stories about their degeneracy and and times playing poker kind of before the boom. Perry Friedman got to know some of these 90s and early 2000s big-name poker pros, and he was the very first employee hired for Full Tilt Poker. So what had happened is that some big-name poker pros at the time, people like Phil Ivey, Howard Lederer, they wanted to start their own poker site. But, of course, these guys did not have the ability to create poker software. They needed a guy who did have that ability. And Perry Friedman was the guy. They they hired him to develop the Full Tilt poker software. Perry Friedman went to Stanford and also was accepted to Harvard, Brown, MIT, and Duke. He was not rejected for any of these competitive schools he applied for. And he was known as a math and computer genius. So the poker pros at the time who wanted to start Full Tilt knew him and thought that he would be a perfect one to hire to develop the proprietary software for Full Tilt, which if you remember, if you played on Full Tilt, it was very, very good software. I thought the PokerStar software was slightly better but the full tilt was a close second. It was very, very good software, especially for the time. So the lead developer of that software was Perry Friedman, and he was hired into full tilt 
exactly for that reason. And obviously, he did a good job with it. He also ended up on the original board of Full Tilt. So even though he was not there when they first conceived it, he was the first employee because he was there so early and developed the software, they put him on the board. So the original board was Perry Friedman, Howard Lederer, Ray Batar, Chris Ferguson, and Phil Ivey. So before I go any further, you may think that he is someone that we should probably blame for what happened to Full Tilt in 2011, when after they got busted by the U.S. government, it was found that they had stolen everyone's money on deposit and could not pay anyone. So was that partially Perry Friedman's fault, being on the board? No, because Perry Friedman had not been on the board for the prior five years. So what happened? Why did he quit the board? Well, it was over the hiring of someone who was the most responsible for stealing the money on Full Tilt. And that was Ray Batar. Now, at the time that Perry Friedman was objecting to Ray Batar being the CEO, of course, the money had not been stolen yet. This was in 2006, and Full Tilt was doing well. But the one thing that Perry Friedman was upset about was that Ray Batar was CEO, and he felt that Ray was incompetent and just not someone who should be in charge there. That he couldn't trust him, he wasn't competent, he wasn't smart enough. And also, he felt that Full Tilt had become too large and too complex for its current leadership. So even outside of his concerns about Ray Batar himself, he felt a much bigger management team was needed to run Full Tilt properly, and warned that if they kept on their current path, that disaster was going to come. Well, he was right. That's exactly what happened. Disaster did come, and they ended up stealing all the money to cover the shortfalls that was uh, when they were hemorrhaging money, and the business was losing very quickly, they started spending player money, which of course wasn't theirs to spend. They just outright stole it. So what happened at the end of 2006, again, four and a half years before Black Friday when it was found that all the money was gone and long before the thefts had started, Friedman attempted to lead a vote to remove Ray Batar as the CEO. The vote was not successful. Apparently, the secondary voice in objecting to Ray Batar and trying to remove him was John Juwanda. But Friedman and Juwanda were unsuccessful at convincing enough people with votes to get rid of Ray Batar. So Ray Batar stayed. So at the end of 2006, when this vote failed, Friedman resigned. said, I don't want to be part of this anymore. Rafe first then took Perry Friedman's seat. That's how Rafe first ended up on the board, was because Perry Friedman had quit. Perry Friedman did not specifically say that he thought that they were going to run out of money and steal the player money. He didn't warn of any of that, of course. But he did say they became too large and too complex for the current leadership, that it needed to be a bigger leadership structure, and that Ray Batar was not the one to be CEO, that he was just simply not capable. That was all correct. That was all 100% correct. He foresaw as much as could have been foreseen. And he felt so strongly about it that he quit the board and, and basically had very little involvement from that point forward. If you think about it, that was a 
pretty brave thing for him to do because he was the developer of the software and at the time he was one of the leaders of the whole site which had become huge and he just walked away from it now he was still getting distributions he didn't just give up his ownership but he gave up his decision making power he gave up his seat on the board something that he helped create he felt that strongly about the mistakes they were making and all the other people they were going oh no come on perry come on you don't know what you're talking about man we can handle it we've handled it so far right look how big we've gotten man you're just paranoid Ray's done a good job. We've been able to handle everything. We're growing every day. We're almost as big as poker stars already. What's your problem, man? Chill out. And keep in mind, as I said, Perry Friedman was not known as a malcontent or a jerk or a negative Nancy. He was the opposite. He was known to be a very positive and fun guy, but he just could not look past this. This is the one thing he was very passionate and angry about. And it ended up with him quitting because he couldn't get a change. He tried to to have Bitar removed, failed, and he gave up. Perry Friedman, at some point, got a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. I don't know when the diagnosis was, and I don't know at what point he got really bad. Interestingly, he was playing at least the World Series of Poker pretty actively, at least through 2022. He had 1.135 million in lifetime caches in tournaments, which is very similar to my numbers, by the way. And he did have a bracelet from 2002, which was from before the boom, but he did win a World Series of Poker bracelet at uh, the 1508 event, which still exists, of course, become a very big event. Actually, a pretty big event even in 02, though. It was a $1,500 event, and it paid 176 k for first, and... It had 339 entrants. The prize pools were a lot top-heavier in those days. But still, it was a 339-person field. It was not a small field. That was his one bracelet. But he continued playing the World Series of Poker very actively all the way through 2022. He had six caches in the 2022 World Series of Poker including a 7th place in the 3K horse event on July 14, 2022. So I don't know how sick he was at that point. It's possible that he either didn't know yet that he had pancreatic cancer, or it had not gotten him that badly yet to where he was able to stand playing poker. Because remember, to play poker, you do have to be able to sit there the entire day and concentrate. You have these long days to play, but there's no physical exertion. You don't have to run down a field or anything like that. You just have to sit there. So provided you have the energy to sit there all day and concentrate and you're not in terrible pain, then you can do it even if you're sick. And in fact, some people with terminal cancer have played before, even shortly before they died, with some mixed success. Sometimes they have to bow out in the middle of the event because they can't handle it anymore. But the fact that they even feel they can try shows you that it's possible. So he must have played a pretty full schedule in 2022 for him to have cashed six times. And these cashers were pretty spread out. So it looks like that he really was just playing a pretty heavy schedule of events. He made a lot of money during his time at Full Tilt with all the distributions. He was a decent-sized percentage owner. I'm not sure what percentage, but he did get a lot of money in distributions. So when that was all finished, he really didn't have a need to work anymore. He had all the money he was going to need. 
So he was really playing poker for fun at that point. I'm not aware if he played cash, but he did typically show up at the World Series of Poker and play. If you take a look, almost all of his caches are the World Series of Poker and almost nothing else. In 2023, he cashed on June 28th at the 1500 PLO8 event. He finished in 132nd place for like a min-cash type thing for 2600. But what's interesting about that, and I was in that event. He wasn't at my table, but I was in that event too. I did not cash. I've cashed that event multiple times, but not in 23. But what's interesting about this is that he played like six months before he died. And he had cancer. This wasn't like a heart attack that just popped him unexpectedly. Now, by then, he had to know that he had pancreatic cancer, and he had to know that he was very sick. But I guess he still felt like he had enough energy to go play at that point. But the fact that he only had one cash that year, when all the other recent years, for the most part, he's been cashing multiple times. In 2019, he only cashed once. But uh, in 21, he cashed three times. In 22, he cashed six times. There's only one cash in 2023, I have to imagine he probably played an abbreviated schedule. Either that or he just didn't do well because it was hard to concentrate because of how sick he was. I do not have the timetable of when he found out he had the cancer and how bad it got and when it got bad. Obviously, it got very bad at some point because he's not with us anymore. Pancreatic cancer is the absolute worst diagnosis to get when you go to the doctor complaining of something wrong. You really can't hear anything worse than that. And that is because there's basically no way out of it. If you have stage 4 pancreatic cancer, within 5 years, 99% of people are dead. And most of them well before that. It has the worst 5-year survival rate of any cancer. It has the worst recovery rate of any cancer. It does not respond well to chemotherapy. It's just one of these things that unless it's very localized and can be cut out, that you're screwed. Once it's spread, you're screwed. You're not going to get out of that one. You're not going to get out of it. You're not going to be able to power through it for two decades before it finally gets you. Because there's other forms of cancer, even like brain cancer, where people will live like 20 years. That's not going to happen with pancreatic cancer. There is one fluke case of pancreatic cancer where a woman lived with it 29 years, and they've never been able to figure out how she did that. And there's been a few other outliers that do manage to live longer than expected. That is the same cancer that killed Steve Jobs, who actually made it a lot longer than you would expect. He made it for seven years with pancreatic cancer, but it killed him at a similar age to Perry Friedman. Perry Friedman died at age 55, and Steve Jobs died at 56. And it shows, if you look at the money Steve Jobs had, no matter how much money you have, when pancreatic cancer comes for you, there's no way out of it. doesn't matter what money you've got. There's just no way to stop it. And Perry Friedman, he had a lot of money too. Nothing like Steve Jobs, but money doesn't matter at that point. You really just have no way to stop it. Pancreatic cancer also will hit people randomly. It has been established that if you smoke, that your chance of getting it is higher But only 25% of pancreatic cancer cases are those who smoke. The other 75% are non-smokers. They also found that you have a higher chance of getting it if you are obese. But it has been found in the majority of cases that they cannot figure out the cause. So most people who get it 
just experience bad luck. Also, something about pancreatic cancer is it occurs due to a gene mutation, but this is not something that gets passed down from your parents. This is a gene mutation that occurs after you're born. And while it is believed that the carcinogens in cigarette smoke can make that more likely to occur, these mutations, that most of them occur just due to random bad luck. And that's probably what happened to Perry Friedman, that he just was unfortunate enough to experience one of these random events that led to these mutations, which led to the pancreatic cancer. So it's very sad. He didn't do anything to bring this on. He didn't live irresponsibly. As far as I know, he wasn't a smoker. This just happened to him like it did to Steve Jobs. But when you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you you have pancreatic cancer, like that's, you can't get a diagnosis that's worse. I'm not kidding. The only thing that might be worse is if they tell you you're having heart problems and you're going to be dead within a few days and there's nothing they can do about it. But aside from that, it really is the worst diagnosis you can get. You just know you're going to be dead soon. Unless you happen to catch it very early and can get it out, if they can cut it out before it can spread. That's the only chance you have. One of his parents posted a very nice tribute to him on Facebook. I'm not sure if it was the mom or dad, because I only see the tribute itself without who posted it, but it is from one of his parents. They wrote this. It was obvious from the time he was three years old doing a thousand-piece puzzles that my son Perry was an exceptionally talented child. In elementary school, he was the first gifted and talented class that Satcham School District ever had. In high school, he walked off with virtually every award that was offered. As a high school teacher, I have attended more than 30 graduations. I guess his, his mother or father was a high school teacher. I've never heard a more rousing cheer before and after any valedictorian speech than Perry's. In his senior year, he was selected as Beth Maths and Science of New York State and sent to Lawrence Livermore National Labs to work on supercomputers. He was accepted to every highly competitive school to which he applied, Harvard, Brown, MIT, Duke, and Stanford. He remained at Stanford for five years on scholarship so he could earn his bachelor's and master's degrees. There was a time when I was at Columbia University and the teacher posed a problem that no one could answer. I called Perry and he solved it within 20 seconds. A year later, he asked me to help him solve a problem. Neither I nor any of my professors could find a solution. I told Perry that I was luckier than he. If I can't solve a problem, I merely have to ask him. He, on the other hand, had no one to help him. Basically saying that he's like the smartest guy out there and he has nobody smarter he can go to to help him. Those who knew him immediately realized that he was the funniest, kindest, and loving person they had ever met. He went on to be an exceptional entrepreneur, fantastic father, and loyal and loving husband. I knew him as all of those and the perfect child. When any of my friends have children, I tell them about the curse of having children. You never stop worrying about them until you die. No one ever stated that, much worse, that they may die before you. I say this with tears running down my face. Sadly, my son Perry, the middle child, the special child, the one who inspired us to have license plates, proud dad and proud ma, passed away last evening from NET's pancreatic cancer, Perry Friedman, 5-15-68 to 121-24. That's a nice tribute from his parent. I wonder how his two siblings felt about this, that he was the special one. I guess they kind of understand, because presumably they're still alive and he's not. But it's pretty clear who the favorite child was in that family. But from these accomplishments you read about here, and I have to imagine 
the parents telling the truth. You know, you know, of course, parents, it's not an unbiased report, but I doubt they were making this stuff up. I mean, this sounds like a really, really brilliant guy. And people said that playing with him was always pleasant. He always joked at the table. They always had these little gimmicks he did at the table. And it's just basically fun to have him around. I talked to Brandon some about him. Brandon knew him from Barge, which was a group that formed on the old Usenet, Rec Gambling Poker. And it was a group of poker players who would uh, meet up as a little like, poker convention that started from before the poker boom. And they still meet every year. So Perry was part of that, and he said that Perry was uh, always a very nice and personable guy at Barge. He didn't know him super well, but he said that everybody liked him there. Something that was not really reported about Perry, but uh, Brandon actually told me, was that Perry became a law student just because he wanted to do something new. He had no need for the money. It was just a new challenge for him when he was kind of just done with poker after full tilt closed. And that, number one, that money wasn't coming in. And number two, he was just kind of done with anything related to poker other than playing recreationally. So since he had all the money he needed, he, he decided the next challenge in his life was to become a lawyer. So in October 2012, he entered as a law student. And he was... 44 years old at that point. So it's not a traditional age to enter the beginning of your law career just as a student. But he was just more doing this for fun. And he did graduate and he did become a lawyer. I don't know how much he actually practiced. I know he was a supporter of civil liberties. So presumably that was along the lines of what what he wanted to practice. He established at the end of 2015 a scholarship called the Perry Friedman Civil Liberty Scholarship that was going to be given out every year at the Boyd School of Law at UNLV. This is not a secret. This is right there on UNLV's website from 2015. It says, Boyd student Perry Friedman recently funded and established a new $5,000 scholarship at the Boyd School of Law. Every fall and spring semester for the next five years, one Boyd student will receive a $500 Perry Friedman Civil Liberties Scholarship. The Dean of Boyd, in collaboration with the faculty, will select the scholarship recipients. The scholarship will be given to students who have demonstrated an interest in protecting civil liberties. And he'd already awarded it to some. Now, keep in mind, he did this before he was even done with law school there. I don't know if it's still continuing. This was something he was doing for five years, starting in 2015. Looks like two $500 scholarships being given each year. A scholarship is kind of a misnomer here. This is more like an award, $500 award for those that had an interest in protecting civil liberties, which seemed to be what was important to him. So I don't know if he established that that was going to continue past those five years, but you can find that on the UNLV website if you Google Perry Friedman Scholarship. In uh, his time at Stanford, he did something that I have to imagine would uh, have much more relevance today. This is kind of forward thinking as well. He was at Stanford 
starting from the mid eighties through like nineteen ninety or ninety one. And I have to imagine that when he was there, he saw the rise of political correctness. And I say this because I entered college in 1990, and I was seeing it begin right around then. And political correctness in the early 90s was really the equivalent of today's highly sensitive culture about anything speech-related, what they call hate speech, where your speech is censored because it offends somebody. And I've always been against that, too. I'm not saying you should have the right on a college campus to harass anyone you want. You shouldn't. But free speech is always going to offend some people. And there does need to be a general freedom of speech on college college campuses where people can express views that aren't necessarily popular. So there is just starting to be some censorship on college campuses in the early 90s based upon what was called then political correctness. And I have to imagine that Perry Friedman saw this and wasn't happy about it. So while he was at Stanford, he joined the Student Legislative Council, where you have to actually get elected. You put yourself on the ballot, and then you uh, have to get elected. It's not that tough to get elected because there's not that many people running, but he got elected to it. And then he actually tried to fight against a campus speech code. At the time, he said, I fought hard against the code because I feel very strongly about protecting the First Amendment. This is especially important on college campuses where the free flow of ideas is essential for academic freedom. I totally agree. He was unsuccessful in fighting that speech code, and it did become the code at Stanford. And I'm sure you've seen recently all the controversy about speech codes on college campuses especially in the last few months where you had those university presidents under fire for not evenly applying the speech codes, where they were allowing some very offensive speech about Jewish students after the October 7th attacks on Israel, and yet were disciplining people for much lesser, quote, violations of the speech code in other areas. So, You could say a lot of offensive things about Jews on these campuses, and nothing would happen to you. And they'd say, oh, this is their free speech. But if you said the slightest thing that could offend gay people or trans people or black people, and they'd haul you in and discipline you in some way. So this was being questioned in Congress, and the three university presidents who were being questioned made fools of themselves and basically refused to condemn anti-Semitic and genocidal speech against Jews. They just wouldn't condemn it during a congressional hearing, and that uh, led to one resigning, and a second one eventually resigning when her plagiarism came to light, and a third one being under a lot of fire, but uh, managing to stay employed. So these all have to do with these campus speech codes that uh, Perry Friedman was already trying to fight back in the 80s. And the truth is that you really have to watch out with these things. When you start establishing speech codes on college campuses that you can't say certain things that are going to offend people. The big problem with establishing these codes is that it becomes very difficult to enforce evenly. And then you're going to start getting into the situation where you're disciplining people over speech you disagree with, but letting speech occur that you agree with. So that's why there should be a pretty lax policy 
regarding free speech on campuses. That is, it should be allowed for the most part, other than something really, really, really egregiously bad that's just being said for the sake of offending people. But aside from that, there should be a lot of leeway for people to express views that are unpopular. And that's, that's the way Friedman felt back in the 80s and the early 90s, and he still felt this way presently, which is why he established that little scholarship there at UNLV. So I have to imagine that he became an attorney later in life to try to fight for the civil liberties. Now, I don't know if he noticed this. I know he said in this article that he was planning to do pro bono civil liberties work when he would graduate, which he did, and he did pass the bar. He said, I hope to fight for justice and help protect the liberties and freedoms that make this such a great country. I also want to encourage others to help protect those rights. As lawyers, we have the opportunity to do a lot of good for others. So I I agree with that, too. The problem is that civil liberties organizations in the late 2010s and throughout the 2020s so far have strayed from their initial goal. So like the ACLU, I used to respect them. And even though most of them were left wing and I was not left wing, I respected them and their commitment to civil liberties and free speech, which I agree with and I think is very important for this country. Unfortunately, the ACLU has kind of flipped on this, and they have begun to support censorship against what they call hate speech. And this is a complete reversal of the way they fought back in previous decades. In fact, there was one famous case in the 70s, I think it was the 70s, where they fought for the right of the KKK to demonstrate, even though they were very against the KKK. But they felt that they should still have the right to demonstrate, even though they hated what the KKK had to say and what they were demonstrating about. So they used to be very, very dedicated purists to free speech, the ACLU. And over time, especially in the late 2010s and presently, switched to really only try to defend the civil liberties of those trying to engage in speech they agree with, which has upset some of their previous leadership who, by the way, is uh, very liberal. It's not like they've ever had right-wing leadership. But their previous leaders, who are still very liberal to this day, are appalled of what they've become. So I, I don't know if uh, Perry Friedman had planned to work with them, but I'm sure if he looked what they had become, he'd probably have been disappointed. But maybe he just meant he was going to work on his own. It does seem like he's an old-school believer of free speech, not one of these newer civil libertarians that claims to be, but only wants to fight for free speech of those who are on their own side. Because that's not free speech. So you got to respect all this, right? you got to respect his intelligence, his educational accomplishments, the Full Tilt software he built, the fact that he took a stand against Ray Batar and the mismanagement at Full Tilt and actually walked away when they would not fire Ray Batar. you got to respect all that. And yet, he had the misfortune of getting pancreatic cancer and passing away before his 56th birthday. So sometimes life just isn't fair. You can be a good person. You can try to do good things. You can accomplish a lot. You can work hard. And then that can happen. And then you can have other people who are horrible and they live to 95. Just some randomness in life that you can't really fade if you end up on the wrong end of it. That looks like this would happen to him. Looks like both his parents are still alive. Obviously not young if he was 55. 
and both his siblings he, seem to be alive, so it's not like, even like he inherited something that was likely to kill him. There are some people that, after you hear that they passed away at a young age, you find out that their mom or dad died at a young age or something similar. And that's very unfortunate, too, and obviously it's not their fault, it's just unfortunate they inherited something very deadly from their parents. There's even some people who choose not to have kids for that reason, because they don't want to saddle their kids with the health problems they have. I've even known people who didn't have kids, not because of life-threatening health problems, but because they did not want to pass down a very, very bad version of chronic depression to their kids, or other very unpleasant but not life-threatening things that they live with, that they don't want to bring someone into this world with those problems, and instead they will sometimes adopt kids for that reason. But looks like with Perry Friedman, it wasn't something that he inherited. It was just something that mutated sometime after he was born, just from bad luck. So, rest in peace, Perry Friedman. I didn't know all that much about him. I knew about all the Full Tilt stuff. That was something I did research at the time it all happened, so I knew that all very well. I didn't know the rest about him, though. I knew he wrote the software, but that, that was the extent I knew. I didn't know all the stuff about his educational accomplishments and how smart he really was and the whole thing later about him becoming a lawyer and fighting for civil liberties and fighting for civil liberties back at Stanford in the 80s and early 90s. Like I knew about none of this until after he had passed away. So after learning all this, it actually would have been someone I would have liked to have known. So anyway, rest in peace, Perry Friedman. And that was a very unfortunate and tragic death and a lot of old school players mourned him on Twitter, including Daniel Negreanu and several others. Well, let's do an ACR topic. Remember we talked about ACR a lot on the last show, about the bot scandal, about their bad responses, about the stupid thing that they tried to do with their contest to write a bot that could successfully go undetected, and how that whole thing was a disaster. We had a big, big, long segment on that. I told you I'd give you any updates. Well, I have an update for you, but nobody's talking about it. In fact, no one really took notice of it until I did. But even when I took notice of it, people didn't care that much. <laughs> it wasn't like the thing with Anthony Zinno where I wrote an article and then at that point it blew up. This one, I tried to bring people's attention to the update and nobody cared. So what can I do? The problem is the poker community's attention span is like that of a two-year-old. So all you have to do to distract the poker community is wave something shinier or newer in front of them, and they go, ooh, 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 look at this, look at this, and that's it. They forget what they were thinking before. Sad but true. So here, this is a pretty big bot scandal. In fact, a huge bot scandal. ACR handled it terribly, and then really with no progress, the community just gave up and continued on. This is even worse than how the community lost interest in the GG Poker super user scandal. Because at least with that one, there was the excuse that other things sucked up the attention. There was the ACR bot scandal here, which seemed to supersede the GG Poker thing. And even in the background, the Munker guy stealing crypto scandal, which kind of fell to the background, but then get pushed back into prominence yet again. And so between Munker Guy and ACR, GG Poker kind of faded into the background with their super user thing. People remember it. People make jokes about it still, about that money taker guy, but it 
also kind of ended without any kind of real progress or any kind of real coherent explanation. But this ACR thing, this just kind of faded out on its own. There wasn't anything else that took over. There wasn't any other big scandal. I think the next big thing that happened was very recently here with Anthony Zinno. But that's a very recent story. But somehow the interest in the ACR thing has just rapidly died down. And they're just continuing on as normal. They didn't even make any changes. But they did release a statement. A statement that they did not put on their own Twitter. At least I couldn't find it anywhere there. And they really didn't push anywhere. They just kind of dropped it on their website and went on. I found this statement and I shared it with the community and people didn't really care. And it's not that people don't care what I have to say. Like when I put out the thing about Anthony Zinno and did the write-up, that has like tens of thousands of views in a very short time. I've had other things I've put out that have gotten hundreds of thousands of views in a very short time. And you can go look. This is not me exaggerating or trying to brag. You can go look at my Twitter and see some of these things I've put out there have really gotten a lot of attention and a lot of viewership. But this one did not. This one just didn't get many people caring at all. They were just burnt out on it, I guess. But here is the statement they put out on January 17th, 2024. It is called Response to Recent Security Concerns. WPN, meaning Winning Poker Network, which is their network, it basically is ACR and a few skins, takes game security and integrity very seriously. We deploy significant resources and technology toward identifying any bad actors that look to gain an unfair advantage or cheat our players out of their funds. Players have recently expressed concern over a group of accounts over the course of the past 12 months. These accounts have all been through a rigorous set of security protocols through the natural course of business. These protocols were performed in real time prior to the list being made public earlier this month. Given the serious nature of the accusations against these specific accounts, we have undergone additional review. As a result of the standard protocols, the majority of the identified accounts have previously been prohibited from playing on the site and have not been active since the protocols were enforced. Several dozen of the publicly identified accounts passed the screening, which included hundreds of hours of video recording of play that we insisted be performed to assure that the account was legitimate. Now, let me stop right there. They're basically saying that they're aware that a lot of people have been complaining over the last year of suspected bot accounts and that they weren't ignoring these complaints, they're saying. They're saying, we did take action. We did make these accounts prove themselves by playing on video so where we could see a human playing and presumably they checked that the play style was the same as when they were accused of playing before with a bot but that they weren't ignoring it they were making them do this and all these accounts passed with flying colors or at least most of them did but then they wrote given the continued concerns expressed by members of our player community Out of an abundance of caution, we have decided to suspend each of these accounts and put those accounts through additional scrutiny before they're permitted to continue playing. They're basically saying, yeah, they passed all the tests we gave them, but because you guys are so concerned, we're going to stop them from playing and make them prove even more. They don't say exactly what, but they claim that these accounts are suspended until they can really prove that they're human and not using bots. They go on to write, In accordance with our policies and where such determinations can be made, we will refund players where we have identified bad actors negatively impacted other players. 
The fight against bad actors using a variety of means to cheat is an ongoing battle for all online poker operators. We are committed to investing and staying ahead of these cheaters. As part of that commitment, we consistently review our security protocols and make changes and improvements based on feedback, player behavior, and as a result of our continual investigations into suspicious play. Our current security protocols include, and then they listed a bunch of things, mandatory player documentation updates, meaning you basically have to upload new ID, CAPTCHA technology and table pixelation changes. So basically what that means is that every so often a CAPTCHA will pop up and say, hey, type what you see here, and if you don't respond, then it's going to assume you're a bot and suspend you. Table pixelation changes presumably are where they will change around how the table looks to confuse the bots so they can't read the screen as well. Software that renders bots who use live data collection such as PPL or OpenPPL ineffective or ineffective. So basically they're changing the data harvesting ability on that site, making certain software that uh, some of the people who are harvesting ineffective. Video recorded sessions for players for pattern evaluation where players match to previous hand histories to compare results. So basically, that, that's what I was mentioning before, that they make people play while on video, and then they analyze their play that was on the video versus the previous play. And if the play style is very different, or if the timing's different, if there's very different things between the videoed play and non-videoed play, then they assume that the non-videoed play were bots, and they will suspend the account and take the money. Deep dives of hand and play history across all our games. Recent banning of virtual and remote access machines. So basically, they're not allowing anyone to play through TeamViewer or anything else that you have to play directly on the computer that you're using to connect to ACR, that if there's any kind of virtual machine or remote access software running, that they will ban the account. Introduction of features such as PLO reshuffle, which puts the folded whole cards back into the deck to reduce collusion opportunities. That's a terrible idea, by the way. Now, it was clarified to me by a player on ACR that they don't always reshuffle PLO games, but I guess there are PLO reshuffle tables where you can play there, and as soon as someone folds, then those cards get shuffled right back into the deck and then could appear on the board somewhere, which I think is a horrible idea. That it, it breaks the game of PLO, which is largely dependent upon reads of what your opponents have or have folded. So the last thing you want is cards that you think have already been folded to appear on the board and just totally change the game. <laughs> that is bad. Recent partnership with GTO Wizard to enhance GTO analysis protocols and detection. That was We've talked about that before where GTO Wizard allows you to look up if their software was used to look a particular situation up and then it'll give you the time and date it was. And if you could match it when you were really at the table, then you can show that that person was using GTO Wizard. Investment in tools that improve data analysis and detection capabilities. They finish off by writing, As a result of these recent concerns, we're undergoing a full review of these current protocols and expect to make additional changes and enhancements to our security measures and to increase our significant investment in security and game integrity. We hope the players will continue to trust us with their play as they have for more than 20 years and will take comfort in the knowledge that protecting the game is one of our most important activities. So it's not a terrible statement. 
But why was it so quiet? Why was this put out under the cover of night where you just have to find it on their website? It's not tweeted. It's not posted anywhere. It's just kind of hidden on their website. You just got to go find it. Isn't that weird? Now, I put it out once I found it, and I explained how I didn't love it, which I'll get to shortly. It's not a terrible statement, but it just really isn't doing very much. And nobody cared. So I guess everybody's past this. The problem with this statement is it's a lot of words. It's a lot of claims. But there's nothing we can verify. There's nothing that's tangible. There's nothing that we can say, okay, well, this is the new ACR now. And we can noticeably see a difference on how they're handling bots versus how they did prior to this statement. You're not going to notice any difference if you're an ACR player. It's going to look the same to you. So they can claim that they're requiring more videoed sessions of suspected bots and that they're going to be really, really checking closely these video sessions if they match the previous play, that they have more CAPTCHAs popping up and that they're pixelating the screen sometimes to throw off the bots and that they've invested in tools to improve their data analysis, blah, 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 blah. But you don't know. You don't know. There's no way to see how dedicated they are to doing any of this. Now, what if you say back to me, oh, come on, you're being too skeptical here. They laid out a number of good things that they can do to stop the bot problem. Why don't you give them a chance? This is January 17th. It's two weeks later. How can you judge them already? Well, I'll tell you how. This is not the first time the whole bot thing came out. This is not the first time there's been a bot controversy on there. This has been going on for years and years and years. Let's go back to September 2020. A Hoosier A on our forum, we've talked about him a number of times and he listens to this show. He found a tweet from September 2020. Important announcement. Due to bot activity, we have banned 10 accounts and issued refunds for a total of $249,997. You can check out all the details on our website in the WPN banned accounts section here. So what was that tweet talking about? That tweet was in reference to a section of their website that they once had that would show all the accounts that they banned. It would list the bot who was banned, and it would list how much money was taken from them. It may have even listed the location of the bot, like what country they were in. But if you go to that URL now, which was winningpokernetwork.com slash band dash accounts, it comes up as file not found. This tweet back in 2020, which claimed they took 250k from these bots and distributed it to the victims, that tweet had a weird and obnoxious looking picture at the bottom that had a big green check mark and said, transparent and verifiable banned accounts. <laughs> And it's so funny looking back because it's not transparent or verifiable because the damn page is down. Not only aren't they updating it anymore, but it's gone. You can't even find who they were banning back in 2020. I guess if you go back through the internet archive machine at archive.org, I, I guess you can find it there. But they took it down from their website, ACR. 
So it's not transparent and verifiable. They, they go make this obnoxious graphic with a, a big green check mark, transparent and verifiable banned accounts. Yet it's not transparent or verifiable. So why is that not coming back? Why are they not listing this anymore? They did this because Joey Ingram made a big deal about it at the time. When I said they did this, I mean they started to list the bots they were banning to pacify Joey Ingram and his big audience. Because Joey Ingram was going on and on and on about ACR is full of bots, and he just would not leave them alone. So the CEO there, Phil Nagy, got rattled, and he came up with this scheme. Okay, from now on, we're going to be very transparent. We're going to list all the banned accounts. We're going to show how much we banned them for, you know, how much we took from them, and how much in refunds we're giving to people. So you'll see every single one. You'll see everything. Transparent and verifiable. Well, that didn't last very long. They quickly gave up on that, and then they took down the whole page. So forgive me if I'm skeptical that this is going to continue all these changes that they are announcing. All these things they say they're going to do. Maybe they're going to do them for two weeks and quit. Who knows? They quit with a whole transparent and verifiable bot list. So why wouldn't they quit all this stuff that they just said they're going to do? And the problem is they have nobody to answer to. They just do what they want. So this statement on January 17th, especially because no one really cared about it, I could see how this just all falls by the wayside. It would be one thing if people were constantly holding their feet to the fire and say, hey, you claim you're going to do these eight things, so give us some progress. What are you doing? Instead, it's like hardly anyone saw it, hardly anyone cared, so I doubt they're going to really do this stuff. Now, I don't think necessarily that they want bots on the site. There's conspiracy theorists out there that claim that ACR likes the bots because they generate a lot of rake, they keep the tables active, etc., etc. I don't think they like the bots because it's a thorn in their side, because every so often they get a blow-up where people really, really make a big deal over it, and it makes them look bad. So you had the Joey Ingram thing in 2020, you had the stuff that was brought out at the end of 2023 and beginning of 2024, where people were very unhappy with them and their mishandling of the situation made it even worse. So they don't want to keep going through this. They don't want to be known the home, as the home of bots. Whatever additional rake they're getting out of this whole thing just isn't worth it to them. I just think they're not competent getting rid of them. And I think they don't want to put out the effort required because it's not an easy thing to do. So I think they give it lip service and then just kind of hope it fades in the background. Something I keep asking them, and they won't answer me, of course, but I keep asking them. If you're so committed to putting it into bots, why don't you put back the listing of the countries of each account? You don't have to put the city. It's not going to give out personal info, just the country. Why is that gone? That used to be there. It's gone now. And it is believed it's gone because it was giving people hints about which accounts were bots and which weren't because it was seen like a lot of accounts from Latvia were bots. Not all of them, but a lot of them were bots. So if you're playing against someone and they seem very bot-like and then you put your mouse over their name and see Latvia, you go, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then you go report them. So I think their security team got sick of this. I think their security team got overwhelmed by people reporting bots that were from Latvia and Russia and other com countries that were known to run a lot of bots there. And I think these reports were probably 
correct in a lot of cases, probably in most cases, but security didn't feel like investigating every single one and then have their feet held to the fire of, hey, why aren't you doing anything about these 30 Latvian bots I reported? Why are they still all here? So in order to stop that from happening on social media, they just took away the location. So now you can't say who's a Latvian or Russian bot anymore. You can say such and such person's a bot, but you don't know what country they're from, and it becomes much less effective than if it's from a country where there's known to be a lot of botting. So I think that's why they took it away. They wanted to discourage reports, and they wanted to discourage bad optics on social media that they're letting big bot rings from particular countries stay there unmolested. They will not answer why they won't put that back. And every time I see an ACR rep trying to tweet about how seriously they're taking the bot situation, I respond back to them and I ask, okay, why is this not coming back? And then they don't want to answer me. And when they finally do answer me, it's always like, well, I don't really know. That's not really my department. I'll try to find out for you. And then they never get back to me. This is like all in public too. I'm not doing this in DM. I'm not hassling them in DM. Like they're getting involved in the conversation publicly and defending ACR, these pros. So I respond back to them and say, can you find out why they've taken away the country listing from each player? Because they just took it away without any explanation, and they've never told anyone why they did, nor will they say why they won't put it back. So I ask the pros who are defending them, and they say, well, yeah, we don't know. We don't know why that went away. Well, can you find out? Well, maybe. This isn't really our department, but we'll see what we can find out. So then we never hear from them. But I think I know. I just told you why. I can't say for sure, because I'm not there at the... ACR meetings where they decide to do this and where they decide not to bring it back, but that's a pretty good guess because there's no reason not to list it otherwise. There was one lame excuse put out there by one of the pros that they took this away because of xenophobia. (laughs) (laughs) That, That people were seeing accounts from certain countries and were making derogatory comments to these people, either racist or xenophobic comments about where they were from. So someone said back, wait a minute, if that's really the issue, which by the way, no one's ever seen this happen other than like allegations of like, oh, there's another bot from Latvia. But like, I haven't heard of a big racism problem or xenophobia problem on ACR, but there's a very easy solution to people who are making those type of comments in the ACR chat. And that is turn off the chat of those abusing chat. So if there's any racists in your chat, turn off their chat so they can't be racist anymore. Turn off the chat for those who are just insulting people because of the country they're from or what they likely look like. Isn't that easy? It's a lot easier than turning it off so people can't find the bots, right? Unless you don't want them to find the bots because it's a big hassle for you. So I think some of the conspiracy theories about ACR are incorrect, but not as incorrect as you might think. They're incorrect in that ACR doesn't want bots, but ACR also doesn't want to put out the effort to get rid of the bots. They just prefer that you forget it. So if ACR could live in a perfect world, there would just be no bots on there. Or there would be no bots that people could figure out were bots. I guess that would be their very perfect world. But since they don't live in a perfect world, it's hard to get rid of the bots. It's hard to identify them all. It takes work. They don't want to do the work. It's the bottom line. I'm pretty convinced of that. 
In fact, another security issue they had with the money that was disappearing from accounts back in 2022, they were very lazy in the way they approached that too. And it was only because I made a big deal about it on Twitter that they eventually had to address it and fix the problem. So we've seen examples of this before. And I hear over and over and over from people that they report things to ACR and nothing gets done, especially about bots. And by the way, I don't have an account there. I don't play there. So I'm not speaking out of bitterness. It's not because I lost on there and I want to see them suffer. Or I think bots are beating me and I'm bitter. I've never played one hand on there. Seriously. Go ahead and check with anyone on ACR. There is no account that belongs to me on ACR or any of their skins. I've considered playing on there because there aren't that many options for online poker for those in the U.S., but I just, I'm too bothered with what's going on there. Like, they do pay you. ACR does pay you. They do pay quickly. They're probably not going to steal your money. I say probably because you never know. They're, they're unregulated, but they've had a good payout record. They're not like a lock poker that just didn't pay people. If you win on ACR, they're going to pay you. So that's good. It's a pretty active site. So that's good. But boy, do they do a horrible job with this bot stuff. And their security team is really crap. So that's why I haven't played there. I've thought about it at times. I just go, no, like it's just, it's inviting too much trouble. I don't want to do it. If they clean up the place, then yeah, I'll probably come play there. But this is just not being handled well. So let's go to GG Poker now. Let's give them a little criticism too. GG Poker had a super user scandal in December. Remember MoneyTaker69? Remember how it turned out that MoneyTaker69 had the ability to see their equity percentage on every street in every hand? That's not quite seeing all the whole cards, but it's pretty damn close. So at all times, MoneyTaker could see his chance to win the hand, anywhere from 0% to 100%, and then act accordingly. And he could also deduce what his opponent probably had, especially if it's a heads-up pot, based on those equities as the hand would play out. And then he could bluff more effectively as well. It's not even just about knowing when to call, knowing when to raise, etc. It's, it's also about knowing when you might be able to run them off the hand. So it's not quite as good as seeing what they have, but it's pretty close. You're never going to lose playing that way. Maybe in the very, very short term if you get super unlucky. But for the most part, you always have the equities displayed for you in every hand. Then you're going to win a fortune in poker, even if you're not a good player. So MoneyTaker69 did that. He modified the GG Poker software client to show him this through the thumbs down and thumbs up features of the software. He just modified it to where those would display the equities in addition to doing those thumbs motions. And this has been verified by GG Poker. This is not just me guessing. And we've talked about this on this show. And I did a long segment about that. So I'm not going to rehash that whole thing. So this really was equivalent to a poker super user. One that plays in the game and can see whole cards, or in this case, very close to that, and crush opponents that way. At the time, GG Poker put out a statement that acknowledged this, but that raised more questions than it answered. Among other things, I'm not going to read the whole statement again, but among other things, they claimed that they found that MoneyTaker69 was cheating by modifying the client to display these hand equities, and that they caught him cheating on December 16th, 
and then made a modification to remove the thumbs up and thumbs down, which they thought was going to prevent him from being able to display these anymore. But what they didn't realize is that he could reject the new client they forced everybody to download and continue using his custom client. So he was still able to cheat. And only when they realized that he had rejected it that they uh, disallowed anyone to use a client that that was older and that, that wouldn't let them reject it anymore. The problem with the statement was that they claimed they found he was cheating on December 16th, and yet he continued playing for another week. The last hand Money Taker 69 was shown playing was on December 23rd. Now, their explanation was, hey, we thought we closed the loophole, and we had no idea that he was able to reject the client and keep playing with this loophole. But that raises one huge question. Why did you not ban him? I asked this last time. Why was Money Taker 69 allowed to keep playing for another week after you caught him blatantly cheating on the site? Yes, you need to fix the hole in your security. Yes, you need to fix whatever he was doing to be able to cheat. That's super important. That's the most important. But you also need to ban him. It's not like, okay, well, we've stopped Money Taker 69 from cheating. So as long as he can't keep cheating, he can keep playing. I, I doubt that was GG Poker's position, that, that he would remain in good standing once they've stopped him from cheating. So why would they allow him to keep cheating for another week? This is their own words. They said they caught it on December 16th. Well, they've never explained this, and that's the biggest hole in their whole story. They've never explained this. And every time I've tried to press them to explain it, they won't explain it. Every time others have asked them to explain it, they won't explain it. My best guess on this is that there were multiple people cheating this way and that Money Taker 69 was just the stupid one. Maybe he was the stupid friend who was given this exploit and then didn't do it in a way that evaded detection. He did it in a very obvious way and then the whole thing blew up. So I have a feeling they caught someone else doing it on the 16th and then Money Taker 69 was somebody else who was still doing it for another week until they caught him. That's what I think happened. I think they just don't want to admit it because then they would be admitting that more than one person did it. And they will not answer whether more than one person did this. They just keep saying they caught him, but they will not say that he's the only one to have done it. Well, this story came back into focus somewhat when there was a new allegation about more super using on there. This one was even more unnerving to people in one way because this was alleged to have occurred at microstakes. Can you imagine a microstakes super user? So these were tables where the default buy-in was $10. I think it was like 25 cent, 50 cent, no limit. (laughs) If people are cheating at the $10 games, wow, where are you safe? The $1 games? Like, How low do you have to play to where you're not running into cheaters? So someone on 2 Plus 2 made a new account to post the following allegation. This is on January 23rd, 2024, about a week ago. Hello, I'm a regular microstakes cash player, and I believe I found a super user. And he listed two screen names, Gemini2 and Lamborghini2. I suspect these two accounts belong to the same person. Both accounts quickly accumulate 500 to 600 big blinds in a short time with a VAP IP, which is voluntarily uh, put in pot. That is meaning uh, the 
amount of money that they're putting in voluntarily that is not blinds of more than 75%, then they immediately leave the table. They play at just one table. They consistently attempt to play the full board, meaning they try to play all the way through the river. Upon observing their played hands, it became evident there's something unusual. I'm uncertain about how to fully utilize online resources, but with further resource, you'll likely see the abnormalities. Gemini 2 leaves and Lamborghini 2 appears soon after. The nicknames don't play very often, but when they do, they become chip leaders rapidly and then leave. There might be numerous accounts we're unaware of. I strongly urge GG officials to monitor their hands closely to detect any abnormalities. The playing style of both accounts is exactly the same. Typically, I label players based on their chip counts and the numbers of tables. This account helps me identify those with abnormal staffs who quickly become chip leaders. These two players have been catching my attention for a while. I have a few more players, I suspect, but I won't mention their names right now because I'm not entirely sure about them. I'm sharing the screenshots of the data I obtained from SmartHand Pro. Although statistics for some of the hands played on this site are provided, it would be beneficial if you could further investigate using additional tools if available. That's enough information for me. The rest is up to you guys who want to investigate. Have a nice day and good luck. So then he posted the very similar stats between Gemini 2 and Lamborghini 2. They do have an insanely good win rate. They're both putting over 77% in the pot voluntarily. They're both raising around 23% of the time pre-flop. They're both 3-betting around 14% of the time pre-flop. And they're just running up big money every time. He does not post any particular hand histories that are suspicious, unlike Money Taker 69, who was just playing like he could see everyone's cards, which he pretty much could. Here we're just seeing stats that are just super abnormally good for two accounts on there that seem to be the same person by their play style and the fact that one leaves and the other joins. So I posted about this and linked the 2 plus 2 thread on January 23rd. And then Jason Kuhn, who is one of the site pros of GG Poker, responded this was 100% not super using, and this case has already been resolved. There are lots of cases of promotion abusers slow chip dumping at micros that makes one person have an astronomical win rate until they're caught. So then I asked him, okay, thank you for the update. I agree this one was far less obvious than Money Taker. Would we be able to find out more about Money Taker? There are several more major questions that I would like to have the answers to. And he said, I hope all the info can surface. As for now, there are legal constraints. He's talking about Money Taker. What I can confidently say is that it's extremely unlikely a similar event ever occurred. I don't know enough to say with 100% certainty. The problem was patched and the vulnerability no longer exists. So I said back, the biggest problem comes from Gigi's own statement. They said they discovered that cheating on December 16th, yet Money Taker was allowed to play for another week. Why? How could a cheater like that not be instantly banned when caught? Well, he didn't answer. <laughs> he gave me a few answers. I asked that. He just goes silent. So then Fedor Holtz, he responded to me. Not that question. He responded about the super user concern, about the microstake super user. He responded, it's confirmed not super users, but chip dumping cases, and we're taking care of quickly after they happened. So it's like they're deploying their pros to come out there and assure people that this one was okay, that this was just people abusing bonuses and they weren't super users, which might be the case. I'm not saying that's not the case. 
So then I took the opportunity again to respond. I said, can you answer why Gigi's statement about MoneyTaker69 was that he was caught cheating on December 16th, yet he was found playing until the 23rd? Why wasn't he immediately banned on the 16th? Huge hole in the narrative here, which oddly nobody will address. Did Fedor Holtz respond? What do you think? How dare you? No. No response from Fedor. No response from Jason Kuhn on that. The way to make a GG Poker Pro run away is to ask them that question. If a GG Poker Pro is ever bothering you, just ask them that question. They will scamper out of the room. That's like kryptonite to GG Poker Pros. Ask them why did they not ban Money Taker on December 16th when they caught him? Why did they let him cheat for another week? <laughs> they run away real fast. They don't want to answer that question. I don't know what the answer is. Like I can't even guess what the answer is unless there were more than one of the super users there, which I think is the real answer. So I guess I can guess. They will not answer that. And that's disturbing. Why won't they answer that? Why can't they be transparent about it? It's a huge, huge, huge hole in their story. In fact, not answering it makes them look worse because it makes it look like they'll catch people blatantly cheating, seeing all the hand equities, which is almost like seeing hole cards, and they'll let them keep playing and cheating people for another week. That's worse than admitting there is more than one super user. How could they let someone keep cheating for a week when they know he's cheating? Even if they think they've stopped the cheating, how could they let him keep playing for another week? Why would you not ban him right at that point? There is no possible excuse for this. None. There's nothing they can say that would be a logical explanation, which is why they will not answer it. So, did this become a whole new scandal? Of course not. Why? Because the poker community has the attention span of a two-year-old. So while this is a very good question, and it's something that everybody should want to know from the biggest site on Earth right now, GG Poker, the biggest online poker site, nobody's pressing it. I got a number of likes to my responses there, but no response and no action. GG Poker just going to let this go away, and why not? Because ACR took their attention away, took that negative attention right away from them, and now even ACR got a pass on the whole thing. People didn't forget, just like people didn't forget Money Taker 69. So yeah, here we are at the end of January 2024, and it is true that people remember that there was a super user recently on GG Poker named Money Taker 69, which is a pretty obnoxious screen name too, kind of taunting people as it takes their money. And people know that ACR had a massive bot problem that took 10 million dollars or more out of the ACR economy. People know that too. But what has really changed? Not very much. So what can people do about this? You can keep holding their feet to the fire. Bring it up when their pros tweet about ACR stuff. Ask that question. Ask the question of ACR why they won't put back the country locations. When GG Poker Pros tweet about GG stuff, ask them why they let Money Taker play for a whole week after being caught. Tell them what the community needs to know the answer to that. The more this keeps being thrown in their face, the more likely it is that both of these sites will have to address these issues. But if you just move on to the next interesting thing, if it got boring to talk about GG Poker and ACR and more interesting to talk about Anthony Zinno and his backpack, well, then ACR and GG Poker keep on with business as usual. 
And I'm not saying you shouldn't talk about Anthony Zeno in that backpack. You should. In fact, that was our lead topic tonight. I'm just saying you need to talk about both. You can't let the new and shiny scandal of the day make you forget about the old scandals which are not yet resolved. And I'm not talking about stupid drama in between, you know, between two players. I mean, that, that type of stuff you can move on and forget about. You don't have to keep dwelling on some feud two people had, even if one was right and one was wrong. I'm talking about things where poker sites are not behaving properly or not being transparent about major security problems on their site. That shouldn't just be forgotten about when something new and shinier happens at the moment. And the funny thing is, it's not even like these other stories are bigger to where they supersede them. So as interesting as Anthony Zeno and the backpack are, they're not more important. That backpack is not more important than everything going on on GG and ACR. Those are bigger issues. They're much bigger issues. So you can't just let the bigger issues fade away because of a newer issue that has the community outraged at this given moment. But boy, is there a big recency bias here on poker Twitter. I wish there wasn't, but there is. You notice on this show, we don't do this. On this show, we cover what's happening in the present, but we also stick on whatever has happened in the past, if it has not been resolved, especially the fairly recent past. That's why we're doing back-to-back ACR and GG Poker topics when nobody else is anymore. But if you want to do your part, just every time an ACR Pro or the ACR GG account promotes something, ask them the question. Ask them why we don't have these answers. Because both these sites are not answering something big. ACR will not answer why they won't put back the countries. GG Poker will not answer why Money Taker was able to play for a full week after being caught cheating. These are two very big answers we need to have. If they won't answer them, we can't compel them to answer them. But if they won't answer them, then they are not serious about actually changing anything. Because if they were serious, they would be transparent about these very major elements of these stories. You can't cover up these major pieces of the stories and just say, oh, no, 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 we're we're different now. Trust us. If you're different, then give us the whole story of what really happened. And I hate the hiding behind, well, we can't reveal this right now because of regulatory reasons. Well, that might, and I want to stress might, be the reason why you don't name who Money Taker actually is. And why you don't give sensitive data out about that account. Though I'm skeptical of that, too. But let's even say that's true, that they can't, for regulatory reasons, say who it is or specific details about that account. But you sure as hell can explain why you did not ban them or suspend them on the 16th when you caught them red-handed cheating on your site on the 16th and why you let them play for another week. That is not stopped by any kind of regulatory issue. That's just you don't want to tell us. And ACR, they have no regulatory issues because they're not a regulated site. They even have less of an excuse. This is just so frustrating. I don't play on either site. It's just frustrating to see because these are very big sites. They're very big and influential sites in online poker. And people, they get all spun up, but but then ultimately they don't care. Ultimately, they just let it go. So nothing's going to change. If you you just let it go, it's not going to change. Tweeting at the moment and yelling at Phil Nagy and yelling at Jason Kuhn, that's not going to change anything. That can be your equivalent of poker virtue signaling where you feign outrage or maybe even at the moment are angry, 
But if you don't follow it up when they don't change anything, it, it's had no impact. Well, we'll see where it goes from here, but I don't see a lot changing, and I don't see that I'll ever get the answers to these things. Well, I bet you know what this is. It's an after-the-fact recorded closing theme because we're splitting this into two parts. So this part was not recorded during the live show, but it was recorded during editing so I could split the show up because the show was very long again, and I just didn't have the energy to edit the whole thing. Besides, you don't really need seven or eight hours in a row, do you? Well, some of you do, but... That's not the way it's going to play. But I guess it could if you just want to wait until part two comes out, then you can just play the whole thing back to back as if it's one big episode. But for the rest of you, part two will be out probably within a few days. I tried to get in all the timely topics into part one, so this way it won't be too old by the time you listen to it. And still plenty of topics left, so anything you didn't hear in part one that was in the agenda, you're going to hear in part two, because we got to everything. I just haven't had time to edit these other topics. In fact, there's even a bonus topic. It's a bonus topic not even on the agenda that's going to be right in there. There's actually nine topics left that you're going to hear in part two. Part one didn't have as many topics. Part one only had five topics, but they were longer topics, especially the Anthony Zeno thing, because there was a lot to talk about. But I wanted to get all that stuff out first before that story gets too stale. So if you don't love the part one, part two thing, I apologize, and you can complain to my boss, and if he makes me do it all in one part in the future, I will have to listen to him. You can text him at 775-372-8355. Tell him what you think of this part one, part two thing. So stick around. Part two will be coming up within a few days. Shalom. Shalom.